Thank you for joining us. We are back with a brand new episode of Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. That's Chase and I'm Josh, and we're here to give you the bonus episode of the Lord of the Rings today, where we're going to tackle a lot of cool rankings and stuff that we've compiled over the entirety of us being on this Lord of the Rings arc today. Some fun little additives as well, maybe some interesting facts and anecdotes from the appendixes, and you know, just overall, some big takeaways, what we thought about the films, what we thought about the novels. We're just going to kind of put it all together here today to really close out this epic series the right way and i'm really excited to do it these are some of my favorite episodes of tackle code that's pretty much all off script this is stuff that we do right off the top of our heads and stuff that we kind of take notes on along the way and so you know i'm really excited to kind of jump into it but before we do let me turn the floor to chase to say a few words stoked man let's do it these are some of my favorite episodes just like you you know because it, it's it is all on the fly it's exactly what we think this is real honest opinions we hold nothing back Let's get it going, man. Let's close this arc out right, man. What a ride it's been. What a hell of a ride it's been with some of our favorite heroes and some of our favorite villains that we'll get in today. And I'll turn the floor back over to you, brother. You got it, my man. And since it's the last time of us talking about Lord of the Rings for a while here, maybe until the new uh, live action series comes out on was it Amazon that's running that. Uh, let's go ahead and put our glasses in the sky, do a little mouse and the chalice cheers to do this properly and... Cheers, my man. Let's tackle this. Cheers, brother. All right. I think, you know, we're going to do a couple things here today, and we're going to start it off with some fun little uh, rankings where we're going to go from our fifth favorite to our first favorite in a few different categories. And the one we're really going to start out with first is our top five favorite places that we come across in the Lord of the Rings series all the way through from the Fellowship of the Ring to the Return of the King any of these really cool locations that really stood out to us. And so what I'll do is I'll turn it over to Chase to give us his number five ranked spot on his top five favorite places. Number five, man, it's kind of a iconic one that people talk about a lot, but had to give it to Mordor, baby. Had to give it to the fire. The fires of Mount Doom in Mordor. Oh, man, this place was badass. I love how J.R.R. Tolkien described it. Even watching the film, it was visually really cool. Uh, you know, the place in general, like, man, you know, being from Georgia and it gets 98 degrees in the summer and living in Florida, and it's even hotter than that. Now it's in July here i can't even imagine how hot this damn place would be holy shit <laughs> like would not want to go there man my ass would fry with my uh you know with how white i am you know i would turn into a lobster if i went there especially for vacation um it was badass seeing i love seeing the tower with sauron's eye that was there you had the black gate and you had the orcs that came out to march and it's kind of like you know it's it's really like sauron's base in a way like with the orcs like home base like if this is where we're gonna retreat to this is where we're regrouping and we're gonna take the shit back it was awesome it was great seeing sam and frodo go there uh i mean i feel like i had to include it on the list it's such an iconic place how do you not include Mordor like that if you don't know Lord of the Rings at all if you never watched the films you never heard of the books or read the books you at least know the word Mordor is from somewhere even if you think it's you know 
even if you think it's in Fortnite or something, it comes from somewhere. <laughs> what about you, man? Number five. What's really funny is Mordor does not make an appearance on my list at all, but uh, my number five ranked place is Minas Tirith, which is the city of Gondor, the capital city of Gondor. You know, they call it the White City, and this is where they make their last stand, really. You know, all the good guys come and, you know, bolster this area. It's where, you know, the big major battle of our time goes down before they march on the Black Gate to really close out, you know, the, the ring side of stuff. But it's beautiful, you know, the way it was described. It had that tree in the middle. You know, it, it's supposed to be like a nat- it uses natural you know, resources as barricades, you know, for the defense of the city. You know, that's where the king sits, you know, the king <laughs> the king of Middle-earth sits in Gondor there, too. So, you know, it, it didn't do enough for me to get it any higher on my list, but I do believe it needed to be included for me, personally. So, my number five ranked spot is Minas Tirith, and I'll turn it over to Chase for number four. Even though Mordor is not on your list, man, I mean, I don't know if it's forgivable, but I'll accept it. It's funny, we still agree on some of these rankings, because number four, man, I got Minas Tirith. That's great stuff. Uh, I gotta say, I love the way it was in the books, but visually on screen, that thing was gorgeous. Like you said, the tree was there. Also, it was really cool reading about it in the books, because remember, Pippin, that's where he got showed around with, what was his name? Briegelad or something? No, Baragon. Yeah, Briegelad was the Ent. (laughs) from That's the right. two towers but yeah it was baragon baragon yeah and uh you know it, it definitely has that historical vibe to it that you almost feel like this has been there for you know centuries in a way with all the kings that have gone through there and uh denethor and 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 it's just got such a, a broad history but just hearing about the battle there and, and reading about it was absolutely phenomenal so Number four on my list, Minas Tirith. What about you, number four? Number four for me is Rivendell. This is the first city of the elves that we see. It's really cool. We have uh, you know some really cool moments that lead up to where we first get to Rivendell. But you know, in this talk about what was beautiful to see on screen. You know, you think about all the the travels that Frodo, Sam. Mary Pippin and, and Strider went through just to get to Rivendell. They were they were staying in, in crappy inns at terrible like locations, and then they were camping out along the road. You get to Rivendell, it's beautiful. You got some waterfalls falling down. <laughs> it looks great. Everything you know it just seems like uh, everything about Rivendell seemed a place of peace and harmony where you could really enjoy your time. That's why Bilbo you know spent you know, some of the, his last years there before leaving Middle Earth uh, on onto the Undying Lands with the elves. So. You know, Rivendell, it's also where we pretty much start the story in a way in terms of what we're going to do with the ring and how we're going to bring everyone together and make this plan to destroy it. That's where, like, that's where the basically the good guy's home base was. Like you said the bad guy's home base is Mordor. Well, the good guy's home base is probably Rivendell. Everyone kind of traveled from so far. Think about it. Boromir traveled from Minas Tirith to Rivendell. People traveled, you know, Legolas, you know, from Mirkwood and Gimli from the mountains. Yeah, they all came here to Rivendell, so... Absolutely had to put it on the list. That's my number four. best my Number four of my top five favorite locations is Rivendell. I'll turn it over I to like Chase it. to give us number three. I like it, man. I like it. Number three. Mine's going kind of in the opposite direction here. 
Don't follow the lights. We're going to the dead marshes, man. We're going to the dead marshes. Uh, I will make a TikTok eventually on this. I promised you guys I will. That'll come out with our interesting facts. Usually we do interesting facts on TikTok about our arc after it's over on the podcast. So I will come out with that eventually. Um, By the way, I did a little history research on this. Uh, There was a lot of battles with elves that occurred there. So those dead people you saw in the marshes, those were actually a lot of those were elves. But um, yeah, it was just creepy. You know, this was it was we were talking about how this kind of was Gollum's chance where he could have just pushed him in (laughs) and took the ring. But it was cool. Even seeing it on screen, it kind of reminded me of when Harry and Goblet of Fire was getting pulled down by the mermaids in a way. Uh, but these were more like ghostly and dead, like Haunted Mansion, kind of. And uh, it, it was just really creepy, followed by the biggest Trixie and False <laughs> to ever come to be in this franchise. So number three on my list is the Dead Marshes. Back to you, brother. Awesome. I don't mind the Dead Marshes. They didn't make it up on my list, but they, they I had some consideration for them for sure. Uh, number three for me is Fangorn Forest. And the reason I love Fangorn Forest is that's where we meet the Ents, Treebeard, for the first time. They had the whole deliberation, and, and Ents played a huge role in taking down Isengard. And on top of that, it was a haunt. It was thought to be haunted. People didn't want to enter. Like the orcs were like, "No, we're not going into Fangorn there." And uh, I remember, they, at least in the film, one of the quotes that Gimli had made when they had come to the pile that the Rohirrim destroyed all the orcs from, like. Fangorn Forest, what madness drove them in there? You know, so like, it was a scary spot. People didn't want to go in there. I thought that was really cool. And so, you know, I just had a couple, there's a big significance of things that happened, and that's where Gandalf came back. If you guys remember, that's where Gandalf came back to Merry and Pippin. And so, and that, and Gandalf the White, I should say, you know. So, for me, a Fangorn Forest made number three on my list, and I'll turn it over to Chase for number two. I respect it. Kind of like the Dead Marshes, man. They did not make my list, but I respect it. That chapter we were reading about when they were in the forest just killed it for me, though. It was so damn boring. I had to cut it out of my top five, but much respect. I respect it. Number two, man. Ah, number two, the Mines of Moria, baby. The Mines of Moria. It was badass. You know, this is where, of course, we have my favorite part in all of Fellowship of the Ring. Gandalf fights the Balrog. In there, people forget, you know, Gimli had some of his ancestors were buried there. Really creepy. All the orcs uh, came in there and, like, ambushed them with the troll. It was just awesome. I do stand by this, like we said with Harry Potter, how they should have Horror Nights houses. If you had a Horror Nights house of the Mines of Moria, I think that would be sick. And Amazon owns Lord of the Rings, so if they could build a theme park with that in there, that would be cool. Uh, you're number two, brother. My number two, it's also a scary location, but it is not the Mines of Moria. My number two favorite location is Minas Morgul. And the reason yeah. I loved Minas Morgul is because it used to be Minas Ithil, which was one of the strongholds of Gondor, but the, the enemy took it over, and they made it, and the way it was described in the book was so creepy. It really kind of made me think of Transylvania-type stuff. And then you saw it on screen, and it had that ghastly light around it, and the, you know, the, the Nazgul perched on top, screeching, the army walks out of the doors, and it just looks like something out of a horror film. I really thought that was super cool, and the importance of it. 
in terms of you know how close Frodo and Sam had to pass, and Frodo almost gave himself up to it because the ring was trying to get back to the the ring wraith there, and and then when the uh, the captains of the West made their last march, they had to decide: do we take back Minas Morgul here, or do we go straight to the Black Gate? And you know, just because it was the uh, the capital of Ithilien, which was a beautiful location at one point in time, and just what they did to it, it's just really creepy. And I thought it was super cool, not only to read about, but also to see on screen. And so that's why it came in number two on my list, Minas Morgul. And I'll turn it over to Chase for his number one location. That's a badass one. Much respect. I almost uh, I was debating between them and and the mines, but I put the mines, but. You know, I'm biased towards the elves, man, so I had to put it on here. My number one, Rivendell, baby. I had to put number one as Rivendell. It's definitely an iconic place. You know, we had the fellowship basically formed there by Elrond, and you had the council. Um, you know, it, it, just like you said, is where Bilbo spent a lot of time. Um, you know, eventually kind of the elves leave there, <laughs> but it's a pretty awesome place and gorgeous to see on screen. Rivendell got my number one, man. What about you? What's your number one spot? So I also went with elves, but I did not go with Rivendell. Obviously, Rivendell was number four. My number one location for Jay Nelly and his top five is Lothlorien. Lothlorien, I thought that was a badass spot just because it was important in a lot of different ways. You know, this, this and, and just how it was characterized, it was like a tree city. They lived in yeah, like the, the cool. trees. <laughs> it was really awesome. It's <laughs> not just like buildings. They had they they basically lived out of the land that they created through trees, and it's all woodlands, right? And I thought it was really great. You know, I mean, that's where we met Galadriel, who had one of the rings of power. You know, had that whole vision thing where she uh, brought Frodo in and, and Sam, and they looked into her mirror and could see potential spots of the future. And on top of that, that's where everybody gets supplies that are important to them, that are useful going forward. Without some of those supplies, they don't make it. Especially Frodo and Sam. Without that file of Gladriel, that that shining light, you know that they don't go past Shelob's lair, right? And on top of that, the rope that they had and the Lembas bread that they get—that's been the only little bit of food that they've been able to stick with the whole time. Uh, just the, the importance of it, and the fact that you know she's the Lady of the Wood. Uh, I just I had to put it at my number one spot. It is Lothlorien, and just to run back through in a number five to number one manner real quick for me, my top five favorite locations in the Lord of the Rings series are number five Minas Tirith, number four Rivendell, number three Fangorn Forest, number two Minas Morgul, and my number one location Lothlorien. And Chase, go ahead and run through your five through one. Yeah, man, I got number five, Mordor and the Fires of Mount Doom. Number four, Minas Tirith. Number three, the Dead Marshes, Follow the Lights. Number two, the Mines of Moria with the Balrog, baby. And number one, the iconic Rivendell. Awesome. Back to you, brother. Love it. So the next thing that we're going to rank is our top five moments from the novel series specifically. All right, so... I had Chase start the last one, so I'll go ahead and start this one. I'll take it at number five. My fifth favorite moment from the novel series is when Gandalf breaks Saruman's staff. I thought that was a really cool one that, you know, what it did is kind of took the power back, right? So, you know, in the beginning, Saruman had Gandalf trapped there. I know in the film, we got to see some sort of wizard battle that didn't really, you know, if that was something that happened, it wasn't really written out in the Fellowship of the Ring there, but Saruman did trap Gandalf there, and he was a prisoner on the top of Orthanc for a good amount of time, 
And so what that kind of did when Gandalf made it back after his battle with the Balrog and came back as Gandalf the White, he became the new leader of like the White Council. And he showed his power by breaking Saruman's staff. And I thought that was a huge moment, super cool. And that was my fifth favorite moment of the novel series. Go ahead, Chase, tell us what your number five is. It was awesome, man. That was great. Uh, number five, this one never shows up in the film at all, um, but I really liked it. Tom Bombadil saves the hobbits from the Barrow Whites. I thought it was really cool. Um, it was something we don't get to see visually, but it really showed the importance of his character, which they entirely cut out of the film. Uh, and those Barrow Whites, man, those look pretty menacing on their own, like we were talking about, almost like White Walkers from Game of Thrones or something. So... I thought it was pretty badass, so it took my number five spot, really. Alrighty. I'll move into my number four. It's hilarious because it's pretty much exactly what Chase just said. My number four is the whole Tom Bombadil encounter. Everything from the time that they got trapped by the trees in the old forest, and then you know he had to sing to the, the old willow tree to get him free. He takes him to their house, and I thought it was crazy when he put the ring on and he didn't disappear or anything. It was just like a regular piece of jewelry to Tom Bombadil because he's got these mystic powers that were never explained, and he doesn't really show up at all in the films, and he makes only you know, referenced appearances throughout the rest of the novel series too. So this whole time, like this, this one little spot that we had bomb with, it was great. And like Chase had mentioned, save them from the Barrow Whites as well. They could have they just ended the whole series right there and got killed in the Barrow Whites in the old forest back in Fellowship of the Ring. So I, absolutely, we had to put Tom Bombadil's encounter on our top five moments there. So it took number four for me. Go ahead and jump into your number four. Number four, man, my boy Sam fights Sheila. Back, you filth. <laughs> I thought it was great, man. Uh, the reason I loved it is because you really see, really, this whole uh, section, you know, him going up through the tower, passing the Watchers, and rescuing Frodo from Sheila. This is when you, and even, like, bearing the ring himself for a while. This is really when you see Sam step up to the plate. His ass could have gone home right there and said, fuck this, we've already <laughs> lost. You know, I've done enough of my shit. This is really sad. I'm going to, you know, put some uh, picture frames at your funeral in the Shire. <laughs> this has been a good run. But no, nah, man, he fought back, rescued his friend from, honestly, uh, something that even some of the elves probably feared. And it, it was awesome. Uh, so number four, Sam fighting Sheila. What about yourself, brother? For me, jumping into my number three here, and this is really cool because we did not see this in the film series at all. This is just straight from the novel because they ended up switching the character who they who kind of portrayed the moment. But Glorfindel fighting with the Wraith back in Fellowship of the Ring. I thought that was super cool, not just because you know it was a fight against an elephant and a, and a ring wraith, but how it was described and characterized. And even afterwards, when Frodo woke up, I, I made sure I, I notated the exact page in the last three paragraphs on page 249 for me. Uh, I was talking about, this is between Frodo and Gandalf. Frodo asks Gandalf, you know, uh, what about Rivendell and the elves? Is Rivendell safe? And Gandalf replies, yes, at the present, until all else is conquered. The elves may fear the Dark Lord, and they may fly before him, but never again will they listen to him or serve him. And here in Rivendell, there live still some of his chief foes, the elven-wise lords of the Elder from beyond the furthest seas. They do not fear the Ringwraiths, for those who have dwelt in the Blessed Realm live at once in both worlds against both the seen and the unseen. They have great power. I thought I saw a white figure that shone and did not grow dim like the others. Was that Glorfindel then? 
Yes, you saw him for a moment as he is upon the other side, one of the mighty of the firstborn. He is an elf lord of a house of princes. Indeed, there is a power Rimadel to withstand the might of Mordor for a while, and elsewhere other powers still dwell. There is power, too, of another kind in the Shire, but all such places will soon become islands under siege if things go on as they are going. The Dark Lord is putting forth all his strength. So that was pretty cool. We never got to see that on screen, but Glorfindel's fight against the Ringwraith jumps in at number three on my favorite moments of the novel series, and I'll turn it over to Chase for his number three. Yeah, man, number three for me is Eowyn fighting the Witch King. I thought it was badass. Uh, you know, I mean, you had that whole scenario where Theoden, you know, has been real, gave it a good run, but, you know, uh, even in the book, I thought it was a little better because, you know, you really don't know if she, who she is, really, at, that, at all at that point. And then you find out exactly who she is. And uh, the person that really up to this point with Eowyn, like you really don't think of her as a warrior based out of the novel in a way at all. I know you had those scenes kind of in the film where she was talking with Aragorn with her like twirling her sword, but it was different in the novel. And it was really cool to see her take down, you know, one of the biggest bads <laughs> of them all on, on Sauron's side. Uh, so it was badass. Um, it, it was super cool how she stabbed him in the face, and uh, you know, and and even afterwards, you know, uh, she really wasn't exactly in perfect condition after that. Like it took everything she had to bring him down, uh, and you even got to see a little bit of Mary in that fight too. Kind of, uh, you know, kind of step up to the plate there. So it was good stuff. So I put number three, Eowyn fighting the Witch King. What about you? Jumping into number two for me, my number two spot goes to Faramir's full encounter with Frodo and Sam. And I just thought this was important for a lot of different reasons. The first of which, uh, obviously we got to see Oliphants for the first time in the, the novel series. Um, but what I thought was really cool, it showed not only Faramir's prowess in battle and how they attacked the men of Harad in that passage and pretty much mollywopped them, right? <laughs> they, they kicked their ass. But on top of that, uh, his full encounter when they brought them blindfolded the trusted Frodo and Sam he's like I know I could go ahead and tell you to close your eyes and you wouldn't you know uh, open them but you know if you stumbled and blinked even that could help, have you open your eyes so we're gonna blindfold you you know they took him there they, he was very respectful the whole time They sh he showed them really beautiful things from behind the water and this in Athelion that one last stronghold that was secret and then he even said that he wouldn't use any weapon of the enemy if he found it by the road like he, his characterization in the books was so much cooler so much more pure of heart than what it was characterized in the film. So I really liked that. And he let them go of his own accord. It wasn't even really a tough choice for him. He was already going to let them go regardless as long as he figured out they were not enemies of, of Minas Tirith or Gondor and making sure they weren't orc spies. Once he learned that you know that was the case, he's, not only did he let them go, he gave them you know, the goods, you know, made sure they got some food, gave them staffs and stuff to make sure they could walk there. And even... Uh, you know, warned them a little bit about the path that they were taking so you know just was super important because think about it if Faramir there and once he knows about the ring because he does because he does because Sam slipped up and told him he could have took the ring there and we would have been screwed all over again so I just thought that was such a powerful moment in the characterizations of a character that we don't actually get and you can't really see on film so if you don't read the books you will miss that and uh, that's why I think it was a, a monumentous moment for me and enough to get uh, my number two moment in the novel series. What do you got for number two? It's great, man. My number two, you basically hit already. It's that flight to the Ford with Glorfindel, man. 
It's a badass. One of my favorite moments. I love it in the book. Just like you mentioned, like the spiritual realm and how he fought the ring race. You know, he, he did cause basically like the water to stop the wraiths, which was awesome. One thing I really thought was cool, remember he used his horse to where Frodo, he got him on his horse and said, make haste. And the horse was set where basically he couldn't fall off of it, which was super cool. Um, and, you know, Frodo was poisoned. And this is kind of like our first big, like, action-packed moment in the series, which is, is really cool and uh, one of my favorites. So, um, yeah, number two, Glorfindel. Uh, saving Frodo from the ring wraiths and the flight to the Ford, man. What's your number one spot? Well, the number one spot in my top five moments from the novel series goes to the full battle of the Pelennor Fields. Uh, I thought it was badass, you know, on top of the, the, the right, like we got to see all of who Gondor's allies were, them come in the best that they could, mustered like the last defense of men, really, you know, uh, on top of that. They, they do their best. They, they hold out a little bit, but it's clear that they're going to be overrun. Then Rohan arrives from the side because the wild men of the woods took him through a secret path. So, like, Rohan didn't run directly into the trap that was set for them by the enemies of Gondor. Or I don't know, I don't know if they were orcs or if they were a combination of what kind of enemies there were. But, you know, the, the Gondor Gon, the leader of the wild men, what took them through the, the, the passage in the woods there. And they came out. They really kind of helped tilt the battle. And then, you know, on top of that, that's when. They, you know, the, the bad guys thought they had some reinforcements coming with the Corsairs of Umbar, but plot twist, our boy Aragorn drops off that motherfucker with the Star of Elendil on the on the flag there, and they just they just take it to them, and that's how they really save the city of Gondor from the first big push of the of the last moments of the Great War, the Second Great War, I guess I could say, right? So, and then on top of that, there too, that's where Theoden dies, his last stand. He goes there. He takes out the the, the chieftain of the Harad, uh, and he does look like a, almost uh, it's almost like they were jousting in a way. He like, spears him through, takes him out, and then the the Nazgul destroys him, takes the horse, flips him on it, breaks his body, and you know that was the end of King Theoden. And, and you know that's the moment Chase was talking about us too with Eowyn there. You know with the with the whole uh, killing the Witch King side of things. It's just like. That whole battle, that was the climax, in a way, of the whole series, you know? I thought it was really cool, and obviously that had to take my number one spot in the top five moments of the novel series. What do you have for your number one? I think you know where this is going for my number one. (laughs) I think you know. My number one spot, man, is Gandalf fights the Balrog, brother. Fights the Balrog. You had the Balrog sword, I think people forget in the novel, comes down and hits the sword of Glamdring from Gandalf and breaks. It was badass. You have Gandalf that turned around and said, fly you fools, and knew this was the only chance they had to get out of there. And in the novel, it was even a little bit different because remember the, you know, the Balrog almost took Gandalf out first already. So he was almost already cut out of there when he was uh, he was he was down for the count almost, and then he got up and and showed his strength, and uh, and and you know was able to make the ultimate sacrifice to save the group and and you had that uh, you know all the orcs just you know basically scattered when the Balrog came there and then before then you know you had the troll and Frodo got stabbed and everything so. 
just that whole area in in the mines of moria and gandalf fighting the balrog took my number one spot brother what about you to take this back from the top here uh, the top five moments of the novel series for me going from five to one number five gandalf breaking saruman's staff number four tom bombadil's encounter number three glorfindel fighting the wraith number two faramir's full encounter with frodo and sam and then number one, the full battle of the Pelennor Fields. That's my five through one in the top five moments of the novel series. Go through your top five. And my top five would be Tom Bombadil saves the hobbits from the Bear Whites, number five. Number four, Sam fights Shelob. Number three, Eowyn fights the Witch King. Number two, the flight to the Ford with Glorfindel and the Ringwraiths. And number one... Uh, the Mines of Moria, and Gandalf fights the Balrog in Fellowship of the Ring. Awesome. So let's go ahead and transition into the top five moments from the film series. I'll go ahead and start here. I'm going to take my number five moment. My number five moment, this was kind of cool, right? Because we were going through the Fellowship of the Ring, and the first part of the book was kind of slow, and you know, we didn't get any real action. Like, the Ring Race were chasing down Frodo, you know, in, in the Shire, and they were hiding and stuff, and they, they had like a little safe house over in Crick Hollow, but... Nothing really cool, no combat really happened until this moment. And it was really cool to see on screen when they left like the Prancing Pony and they made their way to Weathertop. And we have these ring race circling in around four hobbits. Like uh, Aragorn went off to grab something and they were pretty much left all alone. And so I, they, we've got, well, I think it was five ring race at the time. Closing in on four hobbits, they've got no chance. They're going down. <laughs> like that's gonna be. They're screwed. And then out of nowhere, from the darkness, Aragorn jumps with his sword in hand, torch in the other hand, and he's swinging. He's taking them like five on one. And these are ring race. These are not just like regular, you know, villains. These are some of the baddest dudes in the business. And he took them all five on one. Just outsorted them, and then like, I thought I was sick with that that torch. He's flaming it back and forth, setting him on fire, and then that last moment where he just launches it and it goes end over end, and it sticks right in the ring race face of burning him up, and they had to like they had to retreat. And so you know, obviously at that point, Frodo suffered an injury and got stabbed by the Witch King, but Strider saving their asses at Weathertop that was enough to bump it into my number five spot in the top five moments of the film series. What was your number five moment? That was a good one, man. I thought about it, but I didn't put it in there. But I do have Aragorn in there. That's my number five. Number five, Aragorn cuts the head off the mouth of Sauron. You didn't get to see that in the novel. It was badass to see. He was just basically like, F this. I don't believe this. I don't believe it. And then he gave that badass speech that was, I see the same fear in your eyes. It's the same fear that wants to take the heart of me. And it was badass. It's still iconic to this day to me where I remember watching it in theaters as a child. The speech part, even though Kim cutting off the head of the mouth of Sauron was only in the extended version, that just even enhanced it for me even more. So number five, Aragorn cuts the head off the mouth of Sauron and gives the most badass speech in that ending finale there. I, I thought it was great. What about you, number four? Number four for me... And I just thought this was really cool. It's like, again, this is my favorite. So, you know, I'm not saying this is the best all time, you know, but for me, it's just really stood out. I thought it was really cool. This moment is when you really got to see the level of friendship and connection of Legolas and Gimli really come to a good, like, like, a, like a mesh. And it was when they were trying to trail the orcs 
and they got surrounded by the Riders of Rohan. And Aomer comes off and like he doesn't know. They don't know each other. They know they're on the same side. But you know, Aomer is like, you know, you should. Well, you know, he goes, Gimli says, "Give me your name, Horse Master, and I shall give you mine." And Aomer is like, "I would cut off your head, Dwarf, if it stood a little higher above the ground." And it, Legolas like grabs a bow and puts the arrow in his face. He said, "You would die before your stroke fell." And I was like, "Damn, that was sick." So for me, that was enough to take it to number four, my favorite moments in the film series. What about you? What's your number four? Yeah, man, this one didn't happen in the novel at all. I got the warg battle in the two towers. Remember, they were coming over the hill, and then, uh, you know, the orc saying Aragorn fell, and he got stuck on the warg and uh, went off the cliff and dropped Arwen's necklace, and then they came back, and he shows up randomly on a horse. <laughs> I was badass, man. The battle was awesome, and it was a... Oh, I gotta give the film props. Like this was a really cool ad that we didn't get to see in the novel. So number four, I put the Warg battle in the two towers, uh, and Aragorn goes off the cliff. <laughs> Back to you, brother. For me, going into my number three spot on my top five fair moments from the film series, and this is gonna be where Chase is probably gonna be a hard time for putting it this low, but. Gandalf's fight with the Balrog, and then not just what happened in Moria, like like in terms of what we saw on screen. I really liked it when he came back as Gandalf the White, and we got to see the full battle when they went down like all those you know stories and end up crashing in the water. Then they're on the snow top mountain and he's slashing them, and you know finally like they both ended up kind of killing each other. Like their both power was so equal to each other, they both kind of. You know, faded into the abyss. Like Gandalf smote him, like killed the Balrog, and then that took all his energy and just fell down. And that's when he like kind of almost had that Harry Potter moment at King's Cross where he wakes up and is naked. He's like, <gasps> he like breathes and stuff. But that whole battle between the the Balrog and Gandalf just going back and forth in the depths of hell was so sick, man. I thought that was badass. But it only does get number three on my spot for top five moments of the film series. Go ahead with your number three. Yeah, I respect it. I respect it. Number three, and you're probably going to give me shit for ranking this so low, the Battle of Helm's Deep. I got number three, man. The whole battle, the battle was absolutely phenomenal. It was still to this day probably the best battle I've ever seen on screen. Um, you know, even, you know, Gimli and Aragorn when they were not as, even though I don't like Gimli too much, you know, I got to give him credit. You know, they saved that whole walkway there from the bridge. You had Legolas that was like, shoot him down, Legolas. And he was trying to take down the guy that was blasting away the door. Uh, and then, you know, at the very end, after Theoden and everyone's riding out, you had Gandalf kind of save the day down the hill. So it was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, amazing to see on screen. It's still something to this day that, in my opinion, a battle on screen has not rivaled it. And I put that as number three. What about you? Jumping into my number two top five moment from the film series. You guys know I was going to do this. Uh, don't care about it. This is my favorite. But Boromir's last stand, baby. I love that. It was badass. Uh, you know, he saved the Merry and Pippin from all those orcs, which is kind of funny because he really didn't save them. They took him anyways. But my dude was slaying orcs left and right, had no help at all. They were just like overwhelming him, and he's taking him down, catches an arrow in the chest, and keeps fighting, catches another one, still taking him down, hits a third one, and he's on his knees. Like, finally, you know, in, in each, both ways that it, they, it was described in the novel and in the film was 
was sick. Like in the in the novel, it said he was pierced by many arrows, right? So you know, three is fine. You can't just sit there and pierce a dude with like twenty in a, in a film. I get it, but like, <laughs> dude, it, it just was really cool to see. And in my my mind, to make a cool reference from an outside you know subject, you know, it really reminded me of like Majin Vegeta. Like, and the reason why I say this is because Boromir turned evil, tried to take the ring from Frodo right before that happened, and decided, like, like something clicked in his mind that, oh, shit, I did something wrong, and I need to make up for it. Kind of like Vegeta, like, you know, he went bad and then realized that Boo's, like, Majin Boo's, like, even worse, and so he ended up, like, sacrificing himself by giving, like, all, like, breaking his whole power there. I thought it was very similar to Boromir there, just, just giving it everything he has, arrows in the chest, and, like, still just doing his best to make up for the mistake that he made. I thought it was really cool, so the number two, uh, you know, top five moment of the film series for me goes to Boromir's Last Stand. Badass, man. Much respect. It's a, it's an awesome moment. Just, there's too many awesome moments for it to make my list. <laughs> and number two, I'm sure you guys knew I put it in there, Arwen's Flight to the Ford, baby. Arwen's Flight to the Ford. It was badass. You had the Elvish in there. Um, it was it was absolutely phenomenal when she called the horses from the water there at the ford and they came down on the ring race and my favorite line in the entire fellowship of the ring if you want him come and claim him Nino Nina Isolias it was absolutely phenomenal remember I learned Elvish just for that little section there it was absolutely phenomenal absolutely loved it and you had the whole like top gun kind of thing where they filmed like with the bird's eye view and the race were closing in on her and she got scraped by the branch I would watch that on YouTube on the I would pop in the DVD any day just to watch that scene it was absolutely fantastic I loved it number two for me Arwen's flight to the Ford with Frodo all right, transitioning into my number one moment from the film series. Chase already went over it. He ranked it a little low in my opinion, but the Battle of Helm's Deep. It's just simply the longest and most iconic battle in fantasy fiction history. It's cool. We had, and, and they did it a little bit different in the film series too. They added the elves coming to assist. The elves never came to assist in the novel, so it was like a cool addition on there. It really helped bolster the the defense of Helm's Deep. But you saw the the army that Saruman had sent out after him, and you know you remember when Wormtongue's like, "My lord, there is no such army." And it's the tens of thousands, and they look over like the the thing of Orthanc, the, the the roof of Orthanc, and it's just a sea of orcs just ready to destroy. And he says there will be no dawn for men. And so they went there with just the only sole purpose to destroy every last man, woman, and child in Rohan. And you know that whole battle of Helm's Deep, the odds were against them, stacked against them, and you know they they battled the best they could. You know we had the thing where Aragorn threw Gimli to, to defend the bridge, and they jumped over it, and you know Legolas bringing them down. Training, but he couldn't get the couldn't get the guy before he exploded the gate there. And then Aragorn and and Theoden ride out for glory in the last stand. And then all of a sudden, you know, on the fifth day, look to the east, and Gandalf comes running with the rest of the Rohirrim and Eomer, and they just wipe the mess out of the fucking orcs that were remaining. And so for me, that will always be the, the probably the number one moment that I'll always think of when it comes to Lord of the Rings, specifically for the film series, is the Battle of Helm's Deep. That's my number one. What's your number one? I'm pretty sure you can guess <laughs> what's my number one. Uh, the best part in this entire series 
not just including the fellowship part of this, but the two towers part of this as well. Gandalf fighting that Balrog, baby! Beating that ass! Made the ultimate sacrifice! Fly, you fools! He dropped himself down, and then we cut over to the two towers with the flashback with Gandalf the White, where he came down with the sword, and he was stabbing it on the way down in like a free fall, almost like a Goku moment. It was absolutely amazing. They were fighting on the... Uh, tallest tower of the lowest peak he was saying with the snow there and then he like smote him and you got to visually see like the fire go out on the balrog as he threw him down it was awesome and like you said you know it's kind of like they both killed each other it was super cool i absolutely loved it oh man i i can't decide what part i what i liked more as a kid seeing in theaters was that moment or when Darth Maul pulled out two lightsabers like it's one or the other like I can't decide like that's so fucking cool like I remember watching that as a kid and I was immediately like like my eyes were glued I was like you better not have to go through the bathroom right now you better hold it (laughs) it's so good man it was the best I absolutely loved it uh go through your top five again one more time of uh favorite moments from the film you got it Number five, Aragorn fights the Wraiths at Weathertop. Number four, Legolas defending Gimli against Eomer and the Rohirrim. Number three, Gandalf's fight with the Balrog. Number two, Boromir's last stand. And number one, Helm's Deep. What about you? Number five, I got Aragorn cuts the head off the mouth of Sauron's mouth. Whatever is it? The mouth of Sauron. I always, always do terrible with that name. Uh, cuts the head off the mouth of Sauron and gives that badass speech. Number four, we got the warg battle where Aragorn falls off the cliff. Number three, much respect to your moment there, Battle of Helm's Deep. Number two, Arwen's flight to the board, baby. Not Glorfindel, but Arwen had her moment here. And number one, my boy. Gandalf fights the baddest of the them all. The baddest of the baddest because he's the shit and he knows he is. Gandalf fights the Balrog. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump in to the next section. I think this is where it's really going to get fun uh, for a lot of people because we're going to be talking about the top five villains or bad guys or monsters that appear in the Lord of the Rings series. This can include the novels and the films, whichever one. We were taking our top five that we liked there. So go ahead, Chase. Start us off with number five on your top five bad guys. Number five, I gave it to the Queen of Spiders, man. Old Shelob herself. Remember, she, you know, she likes to feed on flesh and uh, fresh blood. <laughs> she would sting them and then eat them. And the whole battle with Sam and Shelob was awesome, but... Don't forget, this is something, this is a monster that even elves felt were threatening. And uh, she was a beast. I've always, you know, in my opinion, I think she could beat old Aragog. <laughs> it was a, she's a beast, man. Uh, she's been around for centuries. It's phenomenal. What about you, man? Number five. Number five, I know this is probably going to seem low for a lot of people, but to me, that's where this person came in. Number five, the Witch King of Angmar. I think he hit my number five on the top five villains. Obviously, he had a lot of badass moments. 
in the extended film edition series, like like in the film series, there he did break Gandalf's staff. That did not happen in the novels, but whatever, you know. But he did. He was a menace, and you know, it was stated that no man should be able to can kill him. You know, no man can kill him, and so a woman had to defeat him, and that was pretty cool. You know, he was riding on the the Nazgul, the cool little dragon-looking things. They looked sick on on film on screen there. Uh, they and he had like a lot of big moments. He stabbed Frodo. You know that could have ended things a long time ago. Uh, he had his little battle with with Strider at Weathertop, and Strider had him retreat there. And you know, he, I really loved when he came out of Mias Morgul and he had that crown on his head. The whole thing, that the face part of it, where you know, in the beginning parts of the the films, he didn't have it. It was just like the regular black hood, and so that was really cool to see. Uh, yeah, you know, I I think that he has a lot of strong moments there but just not strong enough to crack higher up on my top five so number five goes to the witch king of angmar the leader of the ring race go ahead with your number four you know it's funny we're always very similar man i have to agree with you i put number four the witch king of angmar uh, all those reasons man just like you said he i mean you know he didn't make higher on my list for I mean, it just this is a tough list, honestly. Like they fought some badass, some badass motherfuckers. Like I hate to say it that way, but they did, man. Like they went through some tough shit. Like that was rough. But um, yeah, the Witch King of Ingmar. It's it just like you said. Like it took Aowen that no no man could kill him. So Aowen had to do it, and at the same time, you had a big heavy price. They didn't. I mean, I never really like really liked that motherfucker, anyways. But yeah, they didn't got his ass clapped. Is what happened, and uh, yeah, man, for all those reasons, number four, the Witch King of Angmar. It's really funny because we kind of swapped our four and five because going into number four on my list is uh, Shelob the Spider. You know, and the reason why she ranked a little bit higher above the Witch King for me. It's just simply because, like you mentioned, they were the bones of all sorts, orcs, men, elves, and they, you know, they've tried to drive her out and couldn't. She has her own lair and she's been there, as Chase said, since you know, almost the beginning. You know, it's just crazy that no one's been able to best her or kill her. And even Sam, even though he beat her in battle, he didn't kill her. She's still out there. Like she's still alive. It never said that she was dead. So, you know, she survived this whole time. Guess who didn't survive? The Witch King. So, Shelob definitely goes just a little bit above. She's the one that almost really put the... I mean, there's been a lot of moments that put the journey into question. But she stabbed Frodo. And if she didn't stab the Paralyzed and she stabbed the Kill, Frodo's ass would be grass. So, Shelob, she gets the number four spot on my top five villains list. Go into your number three, brother. Badass, man. Number three, I put Sauron himself. The Eye of Sauron, man, and gotta give credit where credit is due. A lot of people might not really think of this one as much because in here he wasn't exactly a physical being for for this whole, really, this series, really. Like, yeah, you hear about him being a physical being uh, before in the beginning of time, but in the Second Age and so, but not here. But, you know, he was the Eye of Sauron, and he always corrupted people to his will, and I think that's what's so powerful about him is he, you know, just look like, look at a sealed door, even out of the last minute with Frodo. Like, if it wasn't for somebody, <laughs> you know, this could be over. And, and he, you know, he formed probably the most badass army anyone's ever seen. 
and uh, it, it commanded the Witch King. So got to give credit where credit is due. Number three, I gave to the Eye of Sauron. What about yourself? Yeah, I think we're. this is our first list where a lot of things match up pretty closely because I also gave the number three spot to Sauron for a lot of what you said. But on top of that, like, yeah, he wasn't a physical being, but that almost makes what he did more impressive. You know what I mean? He yeah. took he took dominion over Middle Earth with like not even being a, a physical in physical form. He did it all with like <laughs> right. his mind and like his malice and stuff. And keep in mind, this whole journey is based on a ring he created, a ring of power. So this guy is like like all powerful, man, for the most part. You know, he, like, like he created this ring that is causing all these issues that caused the, the sequence of events that led to this journey in the first place. He destroyed the elves and the men in the first great war. And if it wasn't for a lucky, like, like backwards sword strike, it cut the finger off him. He'd probably sit out there clapping cheeks, man. So, like, I just think that you know, Sauron, you know... He can't get any higher on the list just because he didn't do a whole lot in the series other than exist and build the armies and kind of take control and dominion of places. But he really used his minions to do that. He himself, you know, kind of was just the, the, the eye on the tower. And so for that reason, I agree with Chase here. I put Sauron as number three on my list of top five villains. What do you got for number two? Number two, man, that Balrog, baby. That shit is fucking terrifying. Even the elves. You know, even the elves were almost, I don't want to say feared the Balrog, but like that's, they knew like that's pretty much as badass as it got. It took, you know, what you could argue is kind of your coach making the ultimate sacrifice just to take this thing down. Gandalf even said, you know, like he is a foe, like you cannot match, like he is way above you. And, and that thing was just, menacing the way it burned with flames and it had that sword uh and in the iconic moment you shall not pass it was badass i loved it man i gave the balrog the number two spot on my list what about you number two on my list and i have a feeling that we've got the same people on our list we just have in different locations because number two on my list Smeagol. Trixie and False, baby. <laughs> Trixie yeah, and False gets my number two spot just because uh, he is the, uh, you know, because the only part that made me not really put him number one is because it's hard to consider him a full villain. He did a lot of bad things, but, you know, it, he was taken over by this ring. He was overall a good person. And you could see, you know, especially in the film, it did a better job of, like, showing the the transformations of a schizophrenia between being like the good okay one and like the evil side of himself you know mostly in in the novel series he never really had the battle between the two like it wasn't as you know apparent as it is in, in the film but i just put him there because you know without smeagol this whole thing doesn't happen he bites the finger off of frodo and that's what destroys the ring so smeagol doesn't exist frodo keeps that ring sauron gets it back and and dark ages begin you know he was all the way from the beginning, just one of those guys, like he said, tricksy and false. He, he, he was slippery, he gets away from situations that he should have been captured in. You know, he, he attacked Sam, he attacked Frodo at the end. He tried to stop the, the, whole, the whole train from moving on towards its destination. They're talking about the ring going to the pit of fire. Uh, he tried to get that bad boy back, followed them all the way from Moria to the Mount Doom. So he stuck along the journey as long as any of them. But then he did really cool things too, like guide them through the dead marshes, which he didn't have to do, you know. Took them to the Black Gate and pulled them back, but at the last minute realizing, like, that's not the way they want to go because if they're going to walk into Mordor, like, he's going to get the ring back. So, you know, Smeagol, obviously, he didn't do it for the kind out of the kindness of his heart. He always did, like, an ulterior motive of wanting to get the ring back. 
but you know he did still commit good acts uh, even for you know bad intentions and so for me you know Smeagol it really encompasses it, what the the story is about you know in, in a way and like how this ring can turn you and make you a shell of yourself and why it was so necessary to get rid of it you know and and so you know, he stuck around for the long haul and yeah the his precious is gone in the fire with the ring but he made my number two list on my top five villains i have a feeling chase is going to tell me what his number one is here and it's going to be a lot of what i just said but let me go ahead and and without further ado leave it to chase to tackle his number one villain number one i'll call it golem <laughs> golem baby Trixie and false we lead them to the winding stair? <laughs> yes! Yeah. Yes, maybe she could do it. <laughs> maybe she could. <laughs> it was phenomenal, man. Uh, and here's why. I have to give it to Gollum and Smeagol as my number one spot. because. And let's even think about this. People forget. Even before Frodo got this ring and Bilbo got this ring, Gollum probably had this ring longer than anyone. Killed his friend, and he was able to... Yeah, it definitely corrupted him, but he was able to keep it for that long a time, which says something alone. Not to mention, to get it back the lengths he went through. Let's face it, he's not the most powerful one, but this isn't the most powerful ranking. Like, he used his... As screwed up as he got being tortured by Sauron himself and the orcs, he used his trickiness and falseness to lead them to Shelob's lair and betray them and even kind of get get on Frodo's side a little bit to who you don't even know who to trust and like what he is and I, I love the way the film did it because yeah you got to see like that split in behavior but just like you said too if it wasn't for him they would have never even got there in the first place. They're lucky they even found him. And uh, it, it was just amazing. Remember when they wrapped him up in the rope and he was like, it burns us. It burns us. It was fantastic. Gotta give my number one spot to the Trixie and the false himself Smeagol Gollum this is for you <laughs> what does your heart tell you number one goes to my boy Trixie and false Smeagol and Gollum what's your number one spot brother my number one spot goes to the Balrog because there this is the most menacing thing that we've seen in physical form obviously Sauron has a lot of power and you know, well, we we hear a lot of the first great war as a backstory, but we don't really see it during this epic adventure of the Lord of the Rings. What we did see is we did see the Balrog shadow and flame with his big ass like flaming sword and the whip from hell, and he just like you know on screen just looked like a demon incarnate. Uh, you know, it, it almost looked like if you guys ever played uh, God of War, the video game, growing up. There was this moment where they ha he had to fight what's called a Mechator in this this grand hall, and it was just this this beast, and it was just crazy. And like he said, it had like the flame in it. It was like not even just like what he was breathing fire or his stuff that was made out, but there was like an internal flame inside of him, you know. And and he took out the, the most arguably one of the most powerful characters in the series, 
took him out. Like, he, he, like uh, at the very least, really put a big wrench in the plans for where the fellowship was supposed to go after the Mines of Moria. And he did it early. Like, he, he's like the first thing that really fucked up their plans. He took Gandalf down into the depths. And yes, Gandalf did end up throwing him down. But he ended up killing Gandalf. It took all of Gandalf's life force to be able to, to, to throw him down. And, you know, he mentioned it like, like in the book when... Legolas saw what it was like a, a Balrog. Like he was, he like, like like gasped. Like he had made like a squeaking sound because they're terrified of this thing. It's supposed to be almost like a thing of myth and legend that this Balrog and this thing came. It's its full thing. And you remember even remember what? And this is kind of maybe like a dramatization of what the film did. But remember when it came and it like roared and all the orcs like scattered, even though the orcs like had them all pinned in Bad and ass. it's screaming. They all just like fuck this shit. We don't want to be anything anywhere near this fucker. You know, and yeah, we had that iconic moment that you shall not passing breaks the bridge, and you think that Gandalf gets away scot free. Nope, you ripped that whip around, got his ankle. He's like, fly, you fools, and pulled his ass down. And they had an epic battle, you know, the ultimate good against bad. And that is what, you know, was the catalyst for Gandalf becoming Gandalf the White and coming back as the leader of the White Council with all these newfound powers, is because, you know, he sacrificed himself and gave up his life to this mission and this cause. And then he comes back as, you know, the leader of the White Council. So, for all those reasons, the Balrog hit number one for me on my list of top five villains. Chase, go ahead and go five through one on your top five real quick. Yeah, my number five on my list was Shelob. Number four, the Witch King of Angmar. The number three, Sauron, the Eye of Sauron himself. A number two, the Balrog. And number one, Gollum, Smeagol. The Trixian False. <laughs> Yours, my friend. You got it. We had the same exact characters, just in different order. Me, number five, the Witch King of Angmar. Number four, Shilob. Number three, Sauron. Number two, Smeagol. Number one, the Balrog. And that will transition us into one of the, probably like, you know, the, the climax of today's episode, the top five favorite <laughs> characters of the, the, uh, the show in the novel series overall. Who, who really resonated with us and why. And so we are going into our top five favorite characters. I'll go ahead and kick us off. I, I have a feeling that Chase is going to be a little, uh, a little grumpy when I tell him what my number five favorite character is. But coming in fifth place for Jay Nelly is Legolas. Legolas hits the number oh, five. <laughs> sir. <laughs> sir. <laughs> All right. Legolas. I'll accept it. Legolas gets number five for me, just because other characters just kind of meant more in, in the film and to me personally. Uh, but he was really cool, you know. It, it, he was the first one that really made shooting a bow look really cool. <laughs> you know, like, every time he was just, like, his, his accuracy was unmatched. And what was really cool, too, was, like, his eyesight, you know, like, what do your eyes see? Legolas, and he was able to see, even in the in mention in the novel series, too, when they took the Paths of the Dead, that he could see... Like he was the only one that could kind of see what was around them. Obviously, you, you have to assume that Eladon and Elro here, Elrond's sons, could see them as well because they were with the, the Dúnedain and, and Aragorn when they went to the Pass of the Dead. But just got a really, like, really cool and respectable. He was the first one to always say, "Hey, wherever Aragorn goes, like I'm going too." And he had that cool little, uh, you know, always had the competition with Gimli of who could kill more. And you know, even though Gimli got him at Helm's Deep, it was still it's sick to see. You know what Legolas was capable of. He was nimble when he took down that Oliphant and slid down the trunk like the surfboard. That was sick. Uh, you know, he just had a lot of really cool moments, and you know, I just, I just think he was a little more graceful, a little more fun. Like I had to put him. You know, I didn't put Gimli on this list. I had to put Legolas on it. 
just because he really embodied what made you know elves special in a way because he was uh, he was as elves, far as elves go he was younger and he wasn't an elder and he wouldn't have all these special powers but he still made being an elf look really cool and what really kind of tipped the scale for me is when Legolas went into the caves and Gimli's like oh man I can't believe that they'll never let me live this down back home uh, an elf goes underground where a dwarf dare not Ugh. you know so like I just thought that was badass man so for those reasons uh, Legolas gets number five on my top five favorite characters in the series that's my five spot. What's your number five spot? Number five spot, top favorite characters. It's really a combination here because it's done a little different. I think you can see where this is going. Glorfindel and Arwen, baby. It was badass as fuck. Glorfindel saved their ass at Flight of the Ford by going through the spiritual realm that we talked about. Saved his ass. And Arwen, I loved her role in the film. Like I said, if you want him, come and claim him. But also, you know, she had that whole relationship with Aragorn in the film. And I thought that was phenomenal. It really showed her more as a warrior, which is in the book. I think she has two sentences out of the entire series. So, uh, Glorfindel and Arwen, I gave my number five, man. You know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for those elves. All right, jumping into my number four spot on my top five favorite characters. Number four, we're sticking with the elves here, and I'm going with Galadriel. Galadriel made my top five favorite characters for uh, numerous reasons, honestly. Number one, she was respected enough to hold one of the rings of power, one of the three elven rings of power. On top of that, she was able to decline the ring of power that was offered freely to her from Frodo. She had that weird thing where she turned like almost evil and this is like you know i i would be a queen <laughs> you know all that <laughs> that sort of deal but she passed the test did not take the ring of power that takes a lot of, of you know self-discipline and control there on top of that you know she provided a safe haven for the fellowship after they had just exited the mines of moria with orcs on their ass and then from there as well too she gives everyone a gift that without most of these people would have been gone a long time ago when after they leave Lothlorien you know so they get even as down as simple as like the cloaks that she gave them Mary was able to rip one off and and leave it for Lestrider to, to track of where they went and you know and then as important as that file that they needed in Shelob's lair where you know if they didn't have that to shine and scare the, the spider off they would have died in Shelob's lair there also the rope that they she gives Sam she can climb down on you know, they, they have, they're gonna have a lot harder of a time than the Lembus bread that's supposed to last them from Lothlorien all the way through the whole of their journey. They, she doesn't give them any of that. If she doesn't appear in this, they don't go anywhere. They, they don't do anything, you know. Uh, so I thought that was, you know, she was super important. And then, you know, the film makes it, her seem even more important. They dramatize a, a few parts. But remember that time where Frodo fell down after throwing Smeagol off him in, in the Shelob's Lair section of the film? And she, like, like, comes to him in a vision and helps him up. And, you know, if you don't succeed, no one will. And she had the whole mirror thing that kind of scares people, showing what could happen if you were to fail. And, you know, Chase always loved to say this throughout the entire series that we covered here today. So the, the, you know, the, the power of the fellowship hangs on the edge of a knife. You know, so like I thought that she was the one that coined that phrase, and you know, it's just uh, she had a lot of important roles and moments, and you know, for me, she was just a little bit more important than like other ones, let's say Elrond, because 
that motherfucker didn't do shit. <laughs> like, like, yeah, like yeah, he, he like held the council <laughs> in his hometown. He's like, all right, now that we have this council, we're getting the fuck out of here, boys. Let's start wrapping it up and let's start getting us to the undying land. So, you know, I just I thought that she was more important and for that reason and all that she did for the fellowship and how her gifts were were instrumental to their success. Gladwell gets my number four spot. What do you have for number four? Yeah, man, and people are gonna give me shit for ranking him so low, but. I put Aragorn as number four, man. I got I got to give respect where respect is due. You know, he is the king that he becomes king again. Um, and he, he basically came from nothing, remember? I mean, you know, he started out as a ranger after that whole thing with his backstory, right? But he came to get them and uh, has really led them all this way the entire time. So besides Gandalf... There's only one other person that has been there from the beginning uh, with this journey with the ring, and, and that's Aragorn. Uh, and just everything he does, I mean, he re- besides Gandalf, I would say Aragorn is the driving force of, uh, of the good guys here, is, is really what I would say. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I think it speaks for itself. <laughs> that's really all I can say about him. But number four, I gave to Aragorn. What about you? Jumping into number three for me, I also put Aragorn here. I know you have him at number four, but I have him at number three. I think he was just a little bit more important, but I couldn't give him any any higher just because of like how I feel about other characters, right? It's not it's not a knock on Aragorn or his characters. Just like this is our personal list of favorite characters, right? So Aragorn, for a lot of the reasons that that Chase had mentioned, he kind of took over being the leader of this group that he wasn't really meant to be. Gandalf was supposed to be there, and you know Gandalf was gone for you know, a good chunk of time. And he had to make really important decisions on top of the fact that he's probably the most skilled fighter of all of them. He's the only reason they survived weather, the weather top. It could have all ended there when the the wraiths came and went, you know, to kill all the hobbits. And he went one on five and was able to fight them off. You know, and we've seen multiple times. And even in the minds of Moria, like his prowess in battle is like unmatched. And then even some of how he's characterized in the book, how, you know, the hands of the king are the hands of the healer. He brought Eowyn back from the abyss, brought Faramir back from the abyss, brought Mary back from the abyss. Like he's, he's, he encompasses everything. He's like the good, like the good and, and, and just true character that you would want. Like he's the, he's the kind of person you'd want to marry your daughter. You know what I mean? Just never did anything for himself. Always sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And because of that, he ended up on top. He was the king. And, you know, he was even willing to die in battle at the front of the Black Gates to give Frodo the time that he needed to do it. You know, he's like, listen, let's make one last stand. I know it was Gandalf's idea, but, you know, Aragorn led the charge. And, you know, because he, he even tried to wrestle, he did wrestle with Sauron and the Palantir, broke the stone to his will, and was able to see, like, the threat from the uh, the Corsairs of Umbar coming, and he was able to get there in time. No one else could really uh, control the army of the dead, right? They, they only were able to be summoned by one person, and that's the true king of Gondor, and that's Aragorn. And, you know, he was able to, he had some really great moments, and that, that's a big one as well. And then, I don't think that... The Rohan survives Helm's Deep without Aragorn. You know, like King Thaden starts to go a little crazy at the end. He's like, so much death. What can one do against such <laughs> reckless hate? And, you know, and then Aragorn's like, dude, like, ride with me. Let's, let's, let's do something here. You know, he's doing everything he can to, to fucking keep them alive. And, you know, he deserves a lot of respect. And honestly, I don't blame anyone who puts him at the top of their list. He just didn't make the top of mine. He hits number three on my top five favorite characters. It goes to Aragorn. Uh, Chase, what do you have for your number three? Agreed 100%. Just on a side note there, just like you said, I mean, it's 
I mean, if we were talking about powerful, like he'd probably be higher on my list too, but it's just favorites. Number three, uh, Samwise Gamgee. <laughs> Samwise. But, uh, you know, and uh, just like what I was saying there, this isn't top five most powerful characters. This is, you know, who are our favorites. And uh, in my opinion, I think Sam deserves a lot of credit. If it wasn't for Sam, that ring would have never gotten there. Yeah, Gollum and Smeagol let him there. But, you know, when Frodo was kind of down for the count, you know, Sam took it upon himself to take the ring and still went back for his friend. Even when all was pretty much felt lost and they were going to make it up the mountain and Frodo still didn't want him to carry it. He still was honorable to his friend, respected his wishes, picked him up and said that iconic line, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and brought him up to the top of the mountain. And even when Frodo, you know, Trixie and False was there, he was telling him, destroy it. Like, don't give into this the whole time. He was trying to tell him to you know, he didn't trust Trixie and False, but Frodo didn't believe him. Like, talk about, like, a really loyal guy. Like, if he was in a Hogwarts house, it would definitely be Hubblepuff. And, you know, I'm a Cedric Diggory guy. Those guys would be best friends over at Hogwarts. So, Samwise Gamgee, I gave number three, man. Big part of this journey, in my opinion. What about you? So, jumping in to my number two spot is going to go to Gandalf. Gandalf hits my number two spot on my top five favorite characters just because of what he meant to this journey. Like, he's the one that initiates everything, even going back to the Shire in the very beginning when they're attending Bilbo's birthday party, of all things. you know, Gandalf realizes Bilbo has a ring that's a little unique, and he didn't really understand it. And so he had to leave and come back and like really realize... And make, he had to like really force Bilbo to, to give the ring up. He's like, hey, man, dude, drop it and like leave this for Frodo. This is obviously doing something weird to you. And, you know, let, let it be here. You let it lie. You go to Rivendell. And then once, you know, Bilbo leaves that, Frodo comes in and Gandalf's like, hey, I got to go figure some shit out, man, because I don't know what's going on with this ring. And then he comes back through the whole thing and, and he's like, is it secret? Is it safe? And then he puts it in the fire. Like, he, we, we realize that this is the ring of power. And so everything from this moment has been like a, a plan of Gandalf, like bringing it to, to Elrond and having them figure out what to do from there. And then from there, he decides he's going to lead the fellowship. Like, no one was forced to go with anyone. Elrond said, you are there of your own volition. You can leave at any time, and no one is going to shame you for it. Like, they, they, we know this is a perilous journey, and you know, the, but this is the best chance we got at, at you know, surviving. And Gandalf's like, I'll take the lead. I'll tell you exactly where we need to go. We'll do everything. He put everything on his back. He got trapped, imprisoned at Orthanc by Saruman. Was able to jump off onto the eagle's back. And then, obviously, depending on which way you want to look at it, you know, in, in the whole in, imprisonment portion of that, he either number one had a if we talk, go by the films, had a sick wizard battle against Saruman, or in the books, you know, he was just like in prison because Saruman was the leader of like council, just more powerful and just, yeah, hey, you ain't going nowhere. You know, either way, he had to find a way to escape. Then he comes back after the, the whole fight with the Ford thing happens, and then, like I said, he goes, uh, takes the lead in charge, and, and then goes into the mines of Moria and sacrifices himself for the good of the fellowship to make sure that they have a chance of getting out. Because if he tries to sit there and fight, or whatever, and, and you know, he doesn't go one on one against that thing and tell him to get the fuck out of there. The orcs are gonna swarm him, they're gonna they're gonna go down right then and there. So Gandalf makes the decision, breaks the bridge, goes down with the Balrog, fights him off, ends up killing him, ends up killing himself, 
And then you think he's done, but he's not done. He comes back, breath of life, and now he's getting off the white, the leader of the white council, and he's more intelligent and stronger than ever. Comes back, and uh, he starts making even bigger plans, ends up freeing Theoden from the ensnarement of Wormtongue in, in the novel series, you know, just from the, his poison words, I guess they could say, he kind of withered him. But, you know, in the films, what ends up happening, he literally frees Theoden by smashing his head against the damn throne until it, it breaks Sauron, Sauron free from him. And then, you know, kind of marshals the defense and tells him to go to Helm's Deep, takes Shadowfax, goes to get the Rohirrim, ends up being the only reason that Rohan survives Helm's Deep, comes in on, like, the fifth day at the dawn, they look to the east, and there Gandalf was, shining white as fuck with all the with all the, <laughs> the Rohirrim behind him. And then, you know, in the book, it, he had, you know, uh, the, the was it Erkenbrand or whatever his name was, as well as the Ents, like, or what they're called Hurons, those ones are, they were like, kind of a mix between trees and Ents that, you know, they came in and, and helped and assist in, 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 you know, surviving them through Helm's Deep. And then they, he ends up, Going into Isengard, breaks Saruman's staff. You know, it, it, the way the film did it is a little bit different. But whole point being, like, this guy's taking, like, this lead charge here. Shows his strength, his intelligence, and just, you know, calm demeanor. You have this feeling that as long as you've got Gandalf on your side, everything's going to be okay. You know, he ends up uh, riding off to Minas Tirith. Has this little, like, power struggle with Denethor. Marshals the defense of the city. Have gone over the last stand there where, you know, they really attack it full force. And then ends up having, like, you know, once they end up surviving that, that first wave, ends up calling a council of all the most important people left there. And he says, I don't counsel prudence. This is what I think we should do. And everyone agrees, hey, we're going to, Gandalf's got us this far. Without this, we've been lost a long time ago. Let's follow his instructions to the bitter end. And they go to the Black Gate, and we see what happens. They got uh, Sauron's eye distracted onto them. Frodo gets the ring, and Smeagol bites it off. And then, you know, they, they, everything, you know, all's well that ends well, right? And he even ends up taking Frodo, you know, boards a ship with him to the Undying Land. So, whole point being, I can 100% see why people would put Gandalf as number one on their favorite characters list for all the things I just mentioned. I think he's amazing. But again, this is a list of favorites. And for all those reasons, he comes in very high at my list of top five, but he doesn't quite make number one. So, number two goes to Gandalf. And with that, I'll turn it over to Chase to give his number two. Number two... I gave to the only elf better than Dobby the house elf, Legolas, <laughs> the king of all the elves, except for actually king. He deserves to be king, though, because he is the man. He is the man. My favorite elves of all time are Legolas and Dobby. I think everyone should know that. <laughs> Legolas is absolutely phenomenal. That's why I have his Funko Pop. Just like I got a picture of Dobby, and I keep him in my house <laughs> like a weird person because they're <laughs> awesome. That's why. And, uh, you know, just Legolas. First of all, I got to say, like, what a cool guy, man. What a cool guy. Gimli was being an asshole through this entire series. Legolas decided to be his friend, kept encouraging to be his friend. Just like in the film, it went a little further and showed, you know, that... He was like, how about dying with a friend? He was like, ah, yeah, finally got the asshole dwarf to come around. Even when the asshole dwarf was talking shit about holding his liquor, couldn't hold his liquor, Legolas held his liquor like the man he was. He even felt a little tingling there, and he doesn't even really drink. He's powerful, one of the most, you know, a very highly regarded elf. 
He took down the whole fucking elephant by himself in the film, man. It's fucking badass. I think you're forgetting the fellowship. He shot that work right through the forehead. He kept saving their ass. Remember when your boy Boromir was getting his ass whipped? He was shooting them down in that film battle. You know, he was even in the Battle of Helm's Deep. He jumped on that shield and was using it like a surfboard. And he was just firing them down. Oh, he was he was kicking ass and taking names, man. Kicking ass, taking names. He even had those little machete knives. Uh, I used to play him when I would play the video games. Uh, Legolas was the man. Uh, absolutely fantastic. I don't think... There's only one other better character, in my opinion, because... He just speaks badass to me, and and I, I he's like Severus Snape in a way because he put up with so much shit from Gimli. Gimli is just the worst of them all. That's just back to you. That's just not true. <laughs> like that's like actually not true. We just read the whole novel series. We watched the films. Like they became friends very early on in, in the Fellowship of the Ring. Like like, like Legolas took Gimli through like the the uh, trees, like through the forest of Lorien, and like became fast friends there. It mentions it almost immediately. Like when they as soon as they. Got the safe, granted safe passage, and then in the movies, like it's just like it's like a joking thing. But like at first, like you know, like the they had a little bit of animosity in the film at the council. He's like, oh, I would die before I see the rings in the hands of an elf, like whatever. Yeah. But he's not a dick at all. Like he's like joke around. Like they they have a good relationship. Where they mess around with each other. Like they they have like a sporting of who can kill the most enemies. Like you know, he he. Just, I just can't believe the Gimli slander over here. But Gimli is just like, I, I mean, I'll, I'll give it to you. He's, he's, you know, he, he, he proved his worth when yeah. he was, you know, he was cutting him down during that whole Boromir thing when he was standing on top of the thing. Even Legolas offered, you know, how generous Legolas is in the film, offered to get him a box <laughs> so he could see. <laughs> Dude, but this no, is, this I, is the most I'm absurd. fine. Gimli's fine. No, I don't have a problem. With it wasn't Gimli. an asshole to him at all. But anyways, <laughs> to move on from that and to jump into the the character that hits the number one spot on my top five favorite character list of the Lord of the Rings series, um, this is no surprise, no shock. My number one favorite character is Boromir, and I know for a lot of people that's probably anticlimactic. You know, they're like, why? He died so early. You know, and I'll, I'll tell you guys a little bit of why. You know, you you could see what was happening to Denethor, his father. Denethor put so much pressure on Boromir because he felt that Boromir was a better son to him because he was loyal and almost like blind loyalty. Whatever his father did, he, like I said, he went and did. You know, he never questioned anything or like used his own sort of like thoughts to be like, wait a second, this doesn't, this isn't the right move that we should make here. Like, no, they, they showed that he went back and took Osgiliath and they say it was almost like he single-handedly took it back and you know, in the extended edition of films, he's like, oh, they exaggerate, you know, the, the day also belongs to Faramir. Like, he tried to be a good older brother to Faramir, trying to get him the praise that Denethor like gives to him. He's like, he's trying to balance between doing what he wants like what his father wants for his father's love but also you know being a warrior and defending the city but also on top of that you know he has a lot of love for his brother and and he never like he hates he's like you never give him any credit he's like oh i know faramir's uses and they are few like he was just a jerk to Faramir. again this is this is the the film side of stuff and the novel is a little bit different but still similar in the fact that the like he had the weight of the world like problems on his shoulders like because gondor was taking the brunt of the force from Mordor. And it, like, they were the ones that keeping Mordor at bay from the very beginning. 
you know so like that was really important that Boromir was you know involved in everything just because he was the the, the one character that could you know, I, I don't know in skill of arms match Aragorn, but definitely of all the ones that we come across, I, if they had a sword fight, that's going to be a good one. You know what I mean? If they, if they, let's say Boromir and Aragorn were like foes in, in battle, that would be a lot like Hector versus Achilles, I think, in, in the Battle of Troy there, like the, the movie we always reference. I really do think that would be a badass one. I do think Aragorn probably does win it like, at the end. But the fact of the matter is, like, Boromir would give him one hell of a fight, you know? And then, you know, continue on through that, we got to see some of the big things that he was able to do, that he was, he, like, the, how strong and sturdy he was, like, moving the snow off the mountains, like, with just his arms and creating paths and killing the, the wolves that went after them at the Mines of Moria again in the novel part that didn't happen in the films. And then, you know, you, you can see that he started to develop a really good relationship with Merry and Pippin, you know, when they were walking along the, the Misty Mountains, right? And they were wrestling. He's like for the Shire, and they like tackled Boromir because they kicked him in the shin because they, they like like snapped their fingers or whatever. And you know they, he was wrestling them. He had a really good relationship. And as soon as that whole thing happened with Gandalf, he was the first one to say like, "Let's give him a moment for pity's sake." And everyone's like, "Dude, like we're gonna get overrun by or orcs." Like I get it, but like man, like we gotta get rolling, you know. And then yeah, that he gets into the the like the forest of Lothlorien. and Galadriel shows him things in his own head and really starts to freak him out. And he starts to see like almost his undoing in a way, and uh, you know he ends up becoming a villain in a way, and tries to take the ring from Frodo. And like I said, I made that Majin Vegeta reference, you know, because I think he learned the error of his ways. Like as he, you know, after he tried to take it, and he then Frodo tripped him and put the ring on and, and ran off. He's like, ah, shit! Like what did I do? And then he, he really kind of is like, you know what? I know I'm not going to survive this. He's like, I don't trust myself. I only think he trusted himself as part of continuing on part of the fellowship. So I think he almost went in to that, that fight wanting to die a little bit. It's like, you know, if you guys ever read the book, the outsiders, like right after, and then that one character got killed and Dallas Winston takes a gun that wasn't loaded and like points at the police just so they could shoot and kill him. Cause he didn't want to live without like that. Like, like it almost reminded me of that in a way. Like he just went in there knowing full well, like I'm going here to die. Like I don't care if I survive or not. Like I did something really wrong. And like, this is the only way that I can try to make up for it is just take as many of these orcs and defend these, these two hobbits the best I can and Merry and Pippin. And you know, cause it was crazy. Like they were about to you know, come up, they, they were like throwing rocks at the orcs and they're about to come up and swim. And all of a sudden more grabs the, the, the sword of the orc throws it back. And like I said, they, I mentioned this already earlier today, just at what he was doing is hacking them up. And then, you know, arrows nonstop through the chest and, you know, in, in the, the novels, it was many. And then in the film, it was three, but it was just really cool. And, you know, we finally got, he got to see him like laid to rest, but he, we got to see him in a, his, his like, like like in his zone right this is like that's what he does like he's a warrior he died on his shield which is exactly what everyone like who is a warrior at heart would want to do like die with sword in hand full battled out killed as many as like there was like hundreds of orcs laid around him is how it was described in, in in the book and you know it was so cool that they had to add it to the end of fellowship of the ring before, instead of like adding you know put it into like the beginning, beginning part of two towers in the film like like they did in the books like he actually died in the first chapter in the two towers in the books where they added it to the end of the fellowship of the ring just because it was such a monumentous moment uh you know and then you know we get back to dinothor and dinothor is like inconsolable because bormir is gone and the one that he thought he could like count on he thought he like bormir wanted to bring the ring back to him and that is what bormir wanted to do he did it for the love of his father who was a psycho who ended up trying to like to like fight with uh, Sauron in the Palantir himself and so it just uh, is unfortunate like what happened and how it ended 
but he's like one of the full like his character arc had like a full development he was like the arrogant guy that you couldn't really stand at first then he started to grow on you and then when he died you're like man like he could have been like he could have really turned it around like especially like his last words aragorn like i would have followed because him and aragorn always kind of butted heads a little bit you know he's like i would have followed you my captain my king and i just thought that was awesome you know it just was it showed like the full turnaround and you know he he saw the error of his ways and he did his best to come back from it and you know, it, unfortunately, he met he met an end that was bereft of him, though. You know what I mean? Like, like that's how you'd want to go out a warrior's farewell. So, uh, for that, those reasons, man, uh, number one spot of my top five goes to Boromir. All right, Chase, go ahead and tell us your number one. Much respect, Boromir's badass, but this one goes to Gandalf. <laughs> Gandalf the White, baby, he is the shit. Also, Gandalf the Grey, but became Gandalf the White, just like you said. Fought the Balrog. No one else could do it. He's kind of coached these guys from the beginning. He even saved their ass at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Uh, I mean, you know, just this entire time, he's kind of been, you know, playing chess with Sauron. And it's phenomenal. And, um,. Uh, even from the perspective of he even looked out for Bilbo at the very beginning that brought him there. And, you know, just everything he's done along the way has been phenomenal. Even the elves uh, always thought so highly of him as Mithrandir. And it was even like when they thought he was dead, uh, such a loss to even the elves were, were sad to hear it. Um, but then, you know, even going to where you had uh, over in Minas Tirith, you know, his whole thing where he he rescued, helped rescue Faramir from burning alive and just all the different things he did. And um, as far as in the novel, you know, coming up with the plan to be the diversion for uh, for, you know, helping Frodo and Sam get the ring to Mount Doom, uh, just everything he did. I had to rank him as number one on my list gandalf what about you man i'll go i know you had boromir yeah i'll go ahead and go through the five yes so for me five to one of my top five favorite characters it goes number five legolas number four galadriel number three aragorn number two gandalf number one boromir go ahead and shoot through your top five number five i had glorfindel and arwen because they kind of substituted his spot out in the film uh number four aragorn number three samwise gamgee sam (laughs) and number two the elf the best elf of them all legolas that saved their ass through almost this entire series if he wasn't there i don't even know how any of this would have even conspired um, number one, I <laughs> got Gandalf the White, Mithrandir, uh, probably you could argue maybe the most powerful of all characters, but uh, definitely a favorite for me. So Awesome. And I'm going to do something that we haven't done in quite some time, and I'm going to play one of our cards, the Great Debate card here. And I just have a topic that I'm curious on how you think of it. And then, you know, I'll tell you what I think as well. Who do you think is the MVP of the entire series and why? Man, that's tough. Um, 
MVP. Wow. <laughs> that is such a difficult question because there's so many different moving pieces to this that got it where it was. You know what? I'm going to say the MVP of this series is Gandalf. And I'm going to put it on one sole fact. Uh, this goes to my favorite moment because I even thought about making it Sam or, you know, even Aragorn come back to be king, getting the, you know, the army of the dead and stuff. It doesn't matter because no one's getting past that bridge unless Gandalf sacrifices his life to beat that Balrog. And that's what it comes down to, in my opinion. So I am giving Gandalf Mithrandir. I am giving him the MVP spot. What about you? So I'm going to do a little bit of a cop-out in a way, and I'm going to go the way of 2003 in the NFL where there was co-MVP Steve McNair and Peyton Manning, and I'm giving the co-MVP honors to Gandalf and Sam. And the reason there's a couple reasons why, right? So you say that the, the, for the reason behind Gandalf is that they don't make it past the bridge. I, I can make a pretty good argument that they don't even get to the end of the Prancing Pony without Sam. You know, like like with the the Black Riders after them and him wanting to put that ring on and, you know, Sam kind of grabbing him and making sure that, you know, things are in the right areas and he's carrying all this stuff all by himself. You know, like that's that's a low-level example, but what it really does is it sets the tone for what Sam means to this journey the entire time. So if we take, you know, just specific moments like that out and just look at it as a whole, and there's times where without either one of these people, this this whole journey is at a loss, 100%. You know, if you, you do from the events of the film series or the novel series, I still think the the end result's the same of who I would pick as the MVP. Because in the film series, they like Frodo sent Sam home at the part where they get towards Shelob's lair. If Sam just goes home and walks off on his own, that's game over. That's dead right there. On top of that, you know, he probably it's game over long before when he's Frodo's just hanging out alone, trying to go his separate ways from the group because like. He want, remember when, when Boromir tried to take the ring from him, he went and got he put the ring on and invisibly went to the boats and tried to get away. And Sam figured out that he was there. And he's like, Sam, I'm going by myself. He's like, yeah, of course you are. And I'm coming with you. And, you know, he, he had, if Sam didn't get brought up on that, that boat with him there, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say what would have happened from that moment on. And, you know, we had the whole thing. He was the first one and the only one that was super uh, skeptical of Smeagol. I can say that Gandalf even said, hey, I have something tells me that he's going to play a role before this is over. For good or for ill, I cannot tell. You know, so no one really knew. But, like, Sam had a feeling the whole time that he was tricksy and false. You know, he, he like, <laughs> without him, you know what I mean? Like, Frodo goes asleep, you know, falls asleep in the wrong way. Smeagol strangles him in his sleep, takes the ring. You know, whatever happens, they're... It's just Sam has been there the entire time. And then if we get to the very end, he's got to carry Frodo, literally carry him. And then on top of that, too, he gets stabbed by a Shiloh. If Sam just leaves him there, his body there, his body gets taken back to Baradur and gets, gets tortured by Sauron and, you know, for however long. And Sam's got to complete the journey on his own, which he was willing to do. He ticked it up. He's like, man, I guess I got to do this. You know, there's a lot of the, the reasons why Sam you know, could, could be the MVP, he was like the most loyal of everyone, and, and Gandalf, for all that great he did, he did leave for quite a long time, it wasn't his fault, because it was to save everybody, but, you know, who knows that if he would have made the same choices that Aragorn did, and, and took them there, but we'll never know, because he just simply wasn't there, and so the split of the fellowship, you can almost not, not add a fault of Gandalf's, but, you know, if he was there, would they have all split? Who knows? I have no idea, 
But you know, it's just it's it's very clear to me that Sam played a really important moment. Frodo would not have gotten to Mount Doom without Sam. Definitely couldn't have you know you know sealed the deal so to speak. Uh, then I also you know to Gandalf's credit, a lot of the things that we mentioned, like he he set all the plans. Like he like he played like a mental warfare chess match trying to figure out what Sauron's move was going to be, how they could counter it, what Sauron might do to counter their counter, and all that. And he's just I mean he was the one bringing people in from places like you know Helm's Deep he like I said he he saved the day there he got to meet us to in time led the defense of the city himself and pretty much uh, you know he was known as the storm Gandalf Stormcrow the bringer of bad news you know people didn't want him around because it always was never anything good and you know but he's without him there without the counsel he gives a lot of these places fall like Rohan doesn't survive Helm's Deep without Gandalf and so Gondor sure as hell doesn't survive the siege of the Pelennor Fields without Rohan so you know that happens there you know what I mean and so there's just yeah I can see the argument made for each so what I'm going to do I'm going to go ahead and give co-MVP honors to Sam and Gandalf and that's my answer and no one can stop me because this is what I do (laughs) so you won me over man I mean I I think a great point you made on that was the fact that they probably wouldn't have gotten to the Prancing Podium because I wasn't really considering that because I was thinking yeah I mean I wasn't really considering that moment because I wasn't thinking that (laughs) I was thinking they could have made it on the trail and maybe you know hidden some trees or something and uh correct me if I'm wrong Mary was there. It wasn't Pippin, like the film, right? Other way around. Other way around. Yeah, yeah. Pippin was there, but not Mary in the novel series. Mary came. Mary came when they made it to Farmer Maggot's place, and they they, he went to pick him up from Farmer Maggot's like location. There. Gotcha. So I was thinking, like maybe you know, with Pippin there, like maybe like that wouldn't be considered, but. Yeah, no, that, that's a great, great point you made. I got to give it to you. I'll give him co-v- co-MVP as well. So Sam and Gandalf, man, that that's great stuff, brother. That's fantastic. Awesome. To move into the next uh, ranking section we've got, we're going to do a ranked order of the novels. And I'm talking like three, two, one. It's not going to be part one of the novels. We'll do that for the films because they were more you know split up in section-wise. But we're going to do the novels as a whole you know from our quote-unquote least favorite to favorite like you know obviously we all thought they were good but you know we're gonna give what we you know our ranked order in our favorites there and so i'll go ahead and let chase start it off of uh, the ranked orders one through three of the novels what took your number three spot number three i put the two towers <laughs> it was uh it was great there was nothing wrong with it like it was a it was a fantastic book honestly like it, it was a great book in my opinion the only reason i ranked it there was because there was a lot of competition between the other two in that damn chapter with Treebeard, where they discuss what to do with them <laughs> for like 40 pages just really got me man that was the one i was falling asleep you know we were over here reading it together <laughs> I, was, I was losing it man and uh i mean but overall, I mean, it was a fantastic book. It was just really that one chapter that kind of got me. Um, so, yeah, I, just because of competition, I had to rank it at number three. What about you? 
My number three spot goes to the Fellowship of the Ring. And the reason why it gets my number three spot is uh, there were some real boring chapters. The very beginning of this book, trying to read through Bilbo's birthday and then what they did directly after, just waiting for things to happen and, and you know, giving the Shire over to the Sackville bag. It's like, that was just so boring, dude. Like, like even reading it into, the, the I think, the first little bit of interest got to me when we went halfway through the old forest and found Tom Bombadil. That's when I started to go, like, okay, this is starting to pick up a little bit. But, man, for the first, like, I don't know, five six seven chapters whatever it was it was a tough read man like, i was i was bored there was a lot of cool things that did happen towards the end of the fellowship of the ring book you know the second portion the second half side of it but man just just there was no part that was as long stretched in the two towers that i thought were as boring as the most boring parts of the fellowship so for that reason and like i just had to put fellowship number three uh what do you got for number two ironically i i put fellowship as number two kind of for the same reasons though um i mean just like you said like starting out people i think people forget because it's been so long now because remember we started this in march remember how damn long they took in the shire how do why do i need to know about every damn artifact that they have that we don't even talk about at all like put that in the appendixes or go put that in the hobbit that we didn't read you know like, like i don't need to hear that um and i don't want to hear about bilbo's bilbo's birthday bilbo's birthday i'm sorry i don't care like i mean that's great like i don't have a problem with bilbo i, I think it's great what he did i've read the hobbit before i mean all right cool uh, unfortunately the films are trash <laughs> so we're not covering that i mean if they were great that might be another story but unfortunately they're not uh I mean, it's you know i mean it was just like in the catch about this too is i think when i first started rereading because i'll say rereading because the first time i read it was eighth grade i mean you know this has been 15 years <laughs> for me since i really picked this up again uh, and it's written in that old style kind of pantameter, I'll say. Like, it's not like reading Harry Potter where you hear, you know, um, you read about the battles. Like, usually, like, the battles are just kind of left off and they're there. Um, like, for instance, I, I really would have liked Fellowship a lot more if we had actually, um, if they had moved that part in the Two Towers to Fellowship and we actually got to hear about how it happened with Boromir and stuff like that, but that didn't really happen. So just for those kind of reasons, but at the same time, positively, it did have the battle with the Balrog, and you heard about how Gandalf was even struggling before, uh, and, and, you know, just all the details there, and you had Glorfindel in the flight of the board. So I had some badass moments too. So it ranked right in the middle for me, man. I put it at number two. Number two for me was the two towers. And I just thought it had a little bit more action than the Fellowship of the Ring because it starts right off with the departure of Bormir, the number one chapter, immediately. And then we also get the Riders of Rohan. We got to see them destroy the, the Orc Party. That was all pretty action-packed. This is when we get Gandalf back. You know, that was pretty important as well. It happens in this book. On top of that, they go to have the Battle of Helm's Deep. They save King Theoden and the Riders of Rohan, which are instrumental to the battle in Gondor that happens. On top of that, uh, you have the, the 
dead marshes that they've got to go through. This happens there. We've got the Forbidden Pool where Faramir captures Frodo and Sam, and you know that that was a little dicey. Then we have the whole action of Shelob's Lair happens in the Two Towers book. You know, I know it happens in the Return of the King film, but we're going right now in the book here. And so just because there's just more action throughout and just a variety of it on both sides and both perspectives of, you know, Legolas, Gimli, Aragorn, Merry Pippin, and eventually Gandalf, and then Frodo and Sam on the other side, it was just there was a lot more action overall in the Two Towers book than there was in the Fellowship of the Ring, even though maybe the Fellowship of the Ring's big climax was cooler than maybe a lot of that. I, I see. I will say the Helm's Deep battle was a little anticlimactic in the book. I thought it was going to be a little bit better just because of how it was on screen. But reading through it, you know, it is what it is. I just think that there was more action overall in the Two Towers, and that's why I just rank it a little bit higher than the Fellowship. So, number two for me is the Two Towers, and I should take away your number one. And number one, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty obvious what it is. But Return of the King, man, this book was phenomenal. The book specifically was fantastic. It was action-packed from beginning to end. You got to see Aragorn go get the Army of the Dead with the Dunedain. Like, that was phenomenal. Uh, excellent. Point to Jay Nelly there, always bringing that up. That's a good one. Um, you know, you had the whole Battle of Pelennor Fields, which was phenomenal. Uh, the Witch King of Agmar, and you had him just not just like the film <laughs> but yeah you know came up to gandalf and um you know and you had eowyn uh destroy the witch king of magmar i mean it was fantastic it was a book that was um had i mean it of course there's always things i you can wish they add from a book but as far as a lord of the rings film it was action-packed from beginning to end so i gave it my number one spot man yeah, and obviously I did too. There's only three rays, so it was a big guess of what my number one <laughs> book was going to be. But yeah, I also put Return of the King as my number one book in the series. Just because uh, it, not only of all the action that happens in it, which is a lot, you know, obviously all the big battles, especially I would say probably most climatic moments of the entire series happen in this book. But it also does a good job of tying everything else up. Like, it does a good job of like sewing things up at the end, you know, where Frodo goes off at the Undying Lands and you have that big debate, you know, is, is that like him going off into heaven or dying or whatever it may be and and that's like their version of paradise is that he was able to sell with the elves you know to to that paradise and on top of that too like they come back to the shire when just when they think all their fighting days are done and they're ready to take a break after the big journey and like lo and behold saruman took over the shire and they've got to like fight him out which is really a big show from of how fall from grace like a big fall of a grace that saruman had that you know four hobbits they were able to kick him out of the shire pretty easily and obviously wormtongue stabbed him and ended up killing him there in the shire but you know that was another addition to things that were going on in there that was seen in the mirror of galadriel that is like a foreshadow to a full circle moment that they tied up very very well uh on top of that you know they said no man could kill the witch of angmar and guess what it wasn't a man it was a female she did that and uh the the big battle scenes before the black gate on the battle of pelinor fields the passages of the dead just all these things man like there this was a complete novel and it did a great job of keeping me interested and tying up the loose ends and it wasn't a terrible send-off you know it wasn't an ending to where i'm like oh man like that really sucked i'm like oh, okay like, you know I, I felt that there was a level of resolution and there's not a ton of questions or things i have you know concerns about like oh well what happened here what happened here like obviously i wish they would have you know talked a little bit more about you know characters afterwards they like, give us a quick little epilogue type of deal like you know how harry potter did when they you know they dropped their kids off at king's cross like that would have been cool but you know it is what it is we can only get what we can get and so you know for all those reasons though the return of the king took my number one spot 
on the ranked order of the novels. And just to run through it real quick one more time, me going through three to one is number three, Fellowship of the Ring, number two, Two Towers, number one, Return of the King. Go ahead and give your uh, three to one. Yeah, the Two Towers, number three, Fellowship of the Ring, number two, and Return of the King, number one. Awesome. And that will go ahead and move us on into the next portion of the rankings. This uh, category is the ranked order one through six of the extended editions of the film. So we're going to be doing like part one, part two. We're going to you know, rank each of that, and we're going to start here at number six. I'll let Chase kick us off. What's your number six uh, in your ranked order one through six of the extended edition films? The Return of the King, <laughs> part one. It was just unforgivable, man. Uh, I mean, the fact that they killed Saruman off on a bridge mill, I, I don't think that's forgivable. Uh, it was cool. Like, I mean, it, you know, I mean, it had, like, some cool fantasy parts with, like, the Battle of Osgiliath and stuff. So it wasn't really, like, a bad film. But, I mean, it was just things that... A, the plot line which is what had to rank it lower i don't know why you would kill off someone that affects the last three chapters of the book <laughs> that was just kind of unforgivable for me so i know it's being harsh but for that big reason i had to rank it last because the competition was great and for that reason that's just something that this cannot be forgiven <laughs> so what about you man yeah, number six for me, I agree with you 100%. Uh, part one, Return of the King, got the number six uh, spot in the order of six to one in the extended edition films here. And it's not even just the, the Saruman part. Like, yeah, that's a big one too, but there's just a lot of things in there that are heavy differences and that can directly negatively affect the plot line. And when you start doing that, it starts taking away from the initial story. And I know you can't do everything. You, know, you can't add all the nuances and pieces and parts, but what you can't do is add things like you know what i thought this is important too where uh aragorn was supposed to look into the palantir and show sauron the sword and show him like the king has returned and that's what causes sauron to jump a little bit and and attack gondor where in the the film like he doesn't even hold the palantir he grabs the palantir and faints as if it had too much power for him and overwhelmed him which is just not true at all and then i think the film tried to make up for it in the return of the like the second part of return of the king and have him like look directly into the palantir and then show him the blade and then sauron shows him arwen dying and then looks like the glass shatters and breaks like that was just absurd like you know what i mean like this this things of that nature but like you said i think overall as a film it was good like this is going to be like a combination of like how much i enjoyed watching it versus how well it lines up with the novel so it's gonna be a combination of the two of where i rank these things and you know for that you know the combination of those reasons that's why it got my my last place ranking at number six uh, what about you for number five number five i put return of the king part two man <laughs> return of the king part two now it was cool like i i really do enjoy like i said you know him cutting off the head of the mouth of sauron and and that big speech Aragorn gave at the end, you got to see the battle at the Black Gate. Like, that was super cool. Um, I mean, it's just kind of one of those things. Like, there were just some differences there. It, it didn't exactly affect the plot line as much as the first part. But, um, you know, there was a good amount of differences. Like, the Army of the Dead didn't actually attack Minas Tirith. But I did think that was cool to see on screen. Um, so I mean, and 
I, I did think it was interesting the deformed orc thing that they took into place. That was kind of cool. Um, but there was just, long story short, is there's just a lot of competition on here. Uh, so Return of the King Part 2 took my list there. All right, finally we're starting to get some differences here in our ranking orders. I'm, I'm happy because I don't like it to all, always match up. So uh, my number five position goes to part one of the two towers. And the reason that part one of the two towers ranked, I wouldn't say so low, I just say like there's just, it was a good film overall. There's none of these films I'm like, oh, I hated watching this. You know what I mean? I enjoyed watching all of them. It's just, like I said, when we, talk, we com- combined watchability with how well it lines up with the storyline, it's just uh, one of those things. And in two towers... To me, it was more of a setup film. Part one of the two towers was a setup mm-hmm. film. You know, the, the Battle of Helm's Steep doesn't happen. You know, the biggest thing that happens in this is Gandalf comes back to us. Like, that's the biggest, you know, level of action. You know, we see, like, the orcs take Mary and then just try to track him all the way through. And, you know, we get, the, you know, the freeing of King Thaden from Saruman's grasp. You know, and that was interesting to see. It's just, like, just nothing really stood out heavy. There's no big part of the part one of the two towers. I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, you know, other than Gandalf returning. And that was cool. And that was a big moment. But you can't have one big moment and that makes the whole movie. You know, like I can think yeah. of so many other big moments in other films that made me, you know, put this at, as low as I did. And so, you know, just, you know, for those reasons and, and a few others as well, part one of the two towers came in at number five for me. What about number five for you? Yeah, I'm right there with you, but <laughs> number... I'm sorry, uh, number four. Yeah, number four. four for you. <laughs> number four for me is, yeah, two towers, part one. Uh, I did like, though, I put it there, I ranked it right above Return of the King Part 2 because of the Balrog. <laughs> you get to see the Balrog in that fight. That was badass seeing when he smote it, like I said, and threw it to the side of the lowest tower on the tallest peak. <laughs> it was absolutely badass. And you got to see that part with the the orcs cutting each other down where they were like, how about the legs? They don't need them. <laughs> I want some meats. <laughs> it was fantastic. We had the whole section on the show where we talked about it. And he was like, meats back on the menu, boys. <laughs> it was excellent. And the whole iconic line, I smell man flesh. <laughs> so for those reasons, I put it as Two Towers Part 1. Also, if you forget, you had the entire... Like, uh, at that moment, if I stand correct here, that warg battle was Two Towers Part 1. Was that Two Towers Part 1 or Two Towers Part 2? I think that was Two Towers Part 1. Okay, yeah, I got it right. <laughs> Good deal, yeah. So, and that was a cool ad for me. Like, I really enjoyed that ad with, like, the necklace that you grabbed. You kind of added some some uh, stuff in there because Arwen has no roles in the novel. I thought it was cool. It was cool. It wasn't in the book. So uh, Two Towers Part 1, I gave it my number four spot. All right. Well, to drive into my number four spot here, I put Part 1 of The Fellowship of the Ring hit at number four for me. And I thought they, they, I put it here right in the, I think I didn't say the middle. It's close to the middle though. But why I put it here and didn't put it any higher it's just because not a lot of action happens in the Fellowship of the Ring as a whole, novel or film. You know, they, they, it's more towards the end of everything. But I do really like the fact, and I put it above the the, the Two Towers Part One and above the Return of the King, is because that it, it followed pretty well along the sequence of events. It left out the whole part of like Tom Bombadil, but that was just omitted fully from the the, the uh, film series. So, like I that I couldn't really go higher from that because that for me was a really key cornerstone moment and. 
you know. But outside of that, it followed the sequence of events pretty well. And even you know, they did switch Glorfindel and Arwen. But you, you know, we both said that I don't have a I don't have a problem with it. You actually, I think you said you liked it more in a way, you know. But yeah, that that happened. They put that on screen, and it looked really cool, especially with the water and the horses coming down and taking out like the race there. And, and that's kind of the 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 uh, inception of the whole journey is it happens at the uh, Rivendell, the Council of Elrond. So that's where everything that kind of happens. But in terms of, you know, big battles and, and everything, that not, nothing really happens. You know, like the Balrog doesn't happen until part two. You know, so like it's just, it it it, 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 it ranks higher than the other ones because it followed closer to the storyline, I think. But it doesn't rank any higher than it does because the lack of action. And I will say that, you know. So uh, for, for me, number four is part one, Fellowship of the Ring. Where you got for number three? You're going to kill me on this. The Two Towers Part 2. <laughs> Number three for me. And it was an awesome film. Like, I don't have any problems with it. Uh, I mean, my one big issue is the fact that Wormtongue is, like, looked like a possessor. And you had that whole, like, possession thing <laughs> going on. Walking, you would have had me crawling on all fours like a beast. <laughs> but, well, I mean, keep in mind know. that happened in Part 1 of Two Towers. Yeah, that's Part 1. But, uh, you know, I guess uh, it was awesome. The Battle of Helm's Deep was fantastic. Um, it was cool seeing the Ents actually, like, you know, the river. <laughs> like, that was kind of cool, I guess. He didn't say, you know, the filth of Saruman is washing away in this one, so that was good. Um, it, it was a great film, really. Uh, I mean, this is kind of when you get to see those extra moments with uh Gimli and Legolas like remember after the battle of Helm's Deep you know uh Legolas shot that extra orc that he was sitting on he was like that's because my axe is buried in his head he was twitching (laughs) it was great so I mean it had like a lot of really cool things along with the action and it followed it pretty close like it wasn't like super major differences that I had a huge problem with and uh so I thought it was great I gave it um a number three spot, the Two Towers Part Two. My number three spot goes to Part Two, Return of the King, and I know it really did mess up a lot of the storyline, and there's a lot of differences. But I also thought the movie was very exciting to watch. You know, like mm-hmm. the, the, so. This is where it, it kind of overplayed, like like because of how much action was in it and how you know they they made things visually look on screen and and you know the special effects and all it overcompensated for the fact that it didn't line up directly with the story as well. There was more differences in, in that second part than maybe the entirety if you line up you know, differences between a sequence of events. There might have been more differences in part two, Return of the King, than any of them. But fact of the matter is, is that it was really cool to see what we did see on screen. We, you know, we got to see, like, even though it wasn't contextually accurate, the fact that the army of the dead swarmed Gondor and saved them when it looked like sure defeat, you know, even though they didn't have the other allies there, that's how they made up for it in their way. And like that whole battle before the Black Gate was sick, they all run towards it and it just looks sick. Uh, you know, he cuts off the mouth of Sauron that you were mentioning, and then obviously like the Shelob's Lair part happened here. It's different from the novel, but it happened in you know part two of the Return of the King, where you know they have Sam battle him 
you know, take that out there and, you know, have to figure out how to get in the Mordor and, you know, it just, it just everything, all the big climatic action happens in this. And so that's why it ranks so high. Not so much because it follows along very well, because it really doesn't. Like of all of them, it might be the most differences between, you know, the novel versus the, the film. But because I think of what I did see and how much I enjoyed, you know, the action. Like, you know, let's say this was, you know, called something completely different. The title of this movie was something completely different, not called Lord of the Rings. Like, I would have loved this movie. Like, you know what I mean? If yeah. this was called, like, The Tales of... Jonathan, I'm like, yeah, damn, that's a good fucking movie. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Just like, like, ra- like, yeah, ra- like, just a random thing. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, you know, it just, it was a really cool movie. It just happened to not follow along the sequence of events as accurately as as other ones. So it does rank high on my list, but I can't put it any higher because of all the differences it has. So number three for me is Part Two: Return of the King. And uh, Chase, go ahead and give us your number two. Who I think you know where this is going? <laughs> Fellowship of the Ring, Part One. Because even though people say it doesn't have action, Arwen kicks some ass. We had an entire Top Gun bird's eye view for you guys. Saved their asses. She got hit by a tree branch and said, fuck that tree branch. Kept riding. And remember you had that whole instance with Aragorn and Arwen. And she's like, you know, I can get him there faster. Aragorn was like, ride hard. Don't look back. And then she didn't. She just rode her ass on there and have that iconic line again. If you want him, come and claim him. Nino 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 It was absolutely Nino Nino It was absolutely phenomenal. It's my favorite part. Besides what's coming up after this, it was a no-brainer for me. It followed the novel so well. Yes, the beginning started out a little slow, but I got to give it to you, though. The Shire looked gorgeous, man. I wish I... If I was on, like, a hotel vacation, I would love to just be kicking back in the Shire, man. You know, uh, you know, back in the Shire, got my little pipe weed weed there that they got. You know, Gandalf loved that shit. Light some fireworks. It was excellent. I loved it. I thought it was great. Um... Back to you for your number two spot, brother. Number two for me is part two of the two towers. And that's a lot of it has to do with the greatest fantasy battle scene we've ever seen on screen in Helm's Deep. That had a lot to do with it. But on top of that, it just it, it was a good combination of a lot of action and still following the storyline pretty well. You know, they went into Isengard. And I thought that was really cool to see the ends just like upend that whole city because Isengard was was pretty was before Sauron like flipped the switch to madness and like became a, a, a villain. Like, that was a beautiful location, and like they, he got they, they walked their way there on the ends, and he saw that like oh my gosh, and then he like after they had decided they were not gonna assist in the war, that was a whole ad too. Like there was never that in the books they were already in at the war from the, after they met together, but they had to, like it had been like that was a cool addition. And they went there and they wrecked the shit out of Isengard. Thought that was really cool, and then you had that whole thing. You know you can only see it in the extended in there, but like yeah, just I, I thought that it was a really good f- mix of. Enough action to keep me interested and entertained and also still follow pretty well along the storyline. It was a good combination of the two. And for that reason, that hits my number two spot on my list, uh, part two, Two Towers. So go ahead and give us your number one, brother. Number one, we know where this is going. (laughs) Number one, Fellowship Part Two. Absolutely badass. You had the battle with the Balrog. 
Gandalf sacrifices his life. And then at the end, you had that amazing battle, your part where Boromir passes away but goes down fighting. It was awesome. You had that uh, orc that was created, that Urukai Lurts, I guess they called him. Um, it, it was sick, remember? He cut off his arms and like pulled him through, pulled himself through the sword. And then Aragorn cut his head off. Uh, and they had Aragorn pinned to the tree with like a shield at one point. Like, that was awesome. That was amazing to see. These are ads I love to see. Even going to part one, just jumping back real quick, that wizard battle was cool. So just to say, like, these ads they're doing here, um, you know, the ads I love the most are the ones that they didn't affect the plot line uh, too much, but it was really cool to visually see that I wish we had some more description of, which is ironic because... <laughs> our boy Tolkien is known for describing everything. <laughs> so, but I wish we got more description of the battles that actually happened in the film. So uh, fellowship of the ring part two, I, I put as number one, man, I'm a sucker for it. I love it. I mean, it hit the same exact number in my ranking as well. Number one, part two, fellowship yeah, of the ring. Let's go. Let's go. Like, it was a great combination of a lot of action and following the storyline through the novel very well. Very, very well. Uh, you know, from the whole battle in the mines of Moria that they had, Gandalf falling to the Balrog, going into Lothlorien. You know, some of the gifts they got were just a smidge different, but that didn't really affect anything like, plotline-wise. Like, the main things were there still, and that was important. They get to the fall of Zororus. This is where the Fellowship broke apart, and you got to see it beautifully on screen. And then, like we had mentioned, like the Boromir's last stand, they added to the end just to have the additional uh, ending on a on a somber note. It was really cool. Uh, yeah, just, I, I agree with you 100%. Part 2, Fellowship of the Ring, did the best of making it super enjoyable to watch and follow the novel uh, corresponding sequences like very, very closely. So for that reason, for me, it also gets my number one spot, part two, Fellowship of the Ring. And I'll go ahead and run through my six through one real quick, and I'll let Chase do the same before we move on to the next part of our ranking. So number six for me, part one, Return of the King. Number five, part one, Two Towers. Number four, part one, Fellowship of the Ring. Number three, Part two, Return of the King. Number two, part two, Two Towers. Number one, part two, Fellowship of the Ring. Number six, I got part one, Return of the King. Number five, part two, Return of the King. Number four, part one, The Two Towers. Number three, part two, The Two Towers. Number two, part one, Fellowship of the Ring. And number one, same as Jay Nelly right here, Fellowship of the Ring, part two. Awesome. Now we're going to move on to the next part. We're going to do a final numeric grade for each novel. And we'll start out with the Fellowship of the Ring. Chase, go ahead and tell me on a scale of one to ten where you rank the Fellowship of the Ring, a final grade for it. Yeah, I, in our previous episodes, you know, I gave the Fellowship... Um, uh, we're ranking the novel, right? First. Correct. Yep. Okay. I gave the novel. Um, I gave the novel an eight point three uh, because it was a slow read, and uh, I hate to say it, it was a slow read, but it was very well written. Um, I'm gonna leave it at an eight point three, man. For me, 
Uh, I remember going back and listening to some of our previous podcast episodes to really remind myself why I thought the rankings that I gave them. And I remember, you know, I, I had even thought about, you know, part one of Fellowship of the Ring versus uh, part two of Fellowship of the Ring. And I'm like, man, the first part really kind of dragged a bit, but the second part had a lot of action, kind of made up for it. So, you know, I was like, I would probably give the first part like an 8.3, the second part 8.4, seven. So I just decided to split it right there in the middle. And I'm giving the Fellowship of the Ring overall an 8.5 out of 10 for me. That is what I gave the Fellowship of the Ring. Now, to go into the Two Towers, what did you give that for a numeric rating? Yeah, in our episode, I gave the Two Towers novel an 8.7. I'm going to keep that the same, too, because in my opinion, it was a little bit more action-packed than the Fellowship was. Um, And, you know, we even got introduced into Trixie and False (laughs) in this one, and really focused on perspectives and you had some fantastic battle scenes and uh, yeah so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it where it's at I like where it's at which is great because I also gave it the same exact rating the two towers novel I gave an 8.7 out of 10 as well and I will also keep it right where it was at when I first gave it that rating uh, you know if you you know at this point maybe a month and a half back right but uh, yeah that's that's <laughs> what I gave the two towers now for the return of the king what did you get on a scale of one to ten yeah, I gave Return of the King the novel a 7.9. I'm going to I really like the novel, man. I'm going to boost it a little bit because I I maybe it's because like once I watched those films, I really appreciated the novel a lot more. I was just so pumped up at that point. Uh but yeah, the novel's action packed and despite Eowyn's crying halfway half <laughs> through half the book, like I mean, it was really well written. And it, it was action-packed all the way through. So I'm going to boost it. I'm going to give the Return of the King book, I'm actually going to give it an 8.5 above the Fellowship book. That was a uh, quite, quite a boost there. And then, you know, for myself, for the Return of the King, I, it's funny because I'm also going to give it a little boost from what I initially gave it. I initially gave the Return of the King an 8.8 out of 10. I am actually going to change that to a 9.0 out of 10. And the reason it's going up 0.2 spots for me is because I really love how there could be multiple interpretations of what happens to Frodo at the end. And you just really are left pondering a, you know, almost like a meaning of life type question that we never really get an answer to. So I, I, there's obviously more parts than that than that make it a great book. But that alone helped me give it an extra 0.2 points. So for me, the Return of the King, I'm giving it a 9.0 out of 10. And just to run through it again real quick, I myself gave The Fellowship of the Ring an 8.5 out of 10. I gave The Two Towers an 8.7 out of 10. And I gave The Return of the King a 9.0 out of 10 when it comes to the novel series. What about you? Yeah, and actually, funny, let's take a step back in time because I misread that. 7.9 was what I gave the Return of the King differences part one and two, which we'll get into in a minute. But what's funny was I did that on the fly. I looked at my notes here on our previous episode. I gave it an 8.5. <laughs> so I'm keeping it the same spot. All my numbers stayed the same. So you can tell this is real because I actually just gave that off the top of my head, man. So you can tell I'm not making some shit up. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, Fellowship. The novel, I'm going to leave at an 8.3. Two Towers novel, I'm going to keep it at an 8.7. 
And Return of the King novel. I'm keeping it at an 8.5. Awesome. And now we're going to go into our final numeric grading for each extended edition pieces of the film. Now to start with The Fellowship of the Ring Part 1, what did you give that on a scale of 1 to 10? So in our previous episode, I gave The Fellowship Part 1 an 8.8. And there's not a lot of action that has in it, but... I'm going to boost it to an 8.9 just to be generous today. 8.9. It was great. Followed the book. Fly to the Ford with Arwen. Gave Arwen a little bit more of a role. We got to hear some Elvish. You had a wizard battle that got added. It was good stuff, man. The Shire looked great. Uh, Bilbo had his birthday and walked on off, and we didn't have to hear from him again until he... You know, he, he just magically showed up in Rivendell. <laughs> I don't know why he decided to go there, but sure, I was okay with it. But yeah, so I'm going to boost it by 0.1 to an 8.9. For me, I gave The Fellowship of the Ring Part 1 an 8.5 out of 10. Go ahead and give me what you got for The Fellowship of the Ring Part 2. I gave it... Uh, uh, Fellowship, uh, I actually gave it the exact same in our previous episode in 8.8. I'm going to give it a, give it a, I'm going to give it a solid nine. Get solid nine. It's a hard nine too. <laughs> That's good. Flat nine. Fellowship part two. For me, I put the Fellowship of the Ring part two at an 8.7 out of 10. Go ahead and give us your Two Towers Part 1 rating. Two Towers Part 1, uh, I had it tied at an 8.7. Um, and uh, I really like the warg battle and everything too. So I'm going to, and I really like the whole part of, we want some meat. So I'm going to be generous. I'm going to leave it at an 8.7 where I had it. Myself, I put the Two Towers Part 1 at an 8.1 out of 10. What'd you have for the Two Towers Part 2? I had the exact same at 8.7. Um, I'm going to leave it the same. I'm going to leave it at 8.7. I gave the Two Towers Part 2 an 8.6 out of 10. What did you give the Return of the King Part 1? Return of the King Part 1, I gave a 7.9 is what I gave it. I gave the Return of the King Part 1 a 7.1 out of 10. Uh, what did you give the Return of the King Part 2? I also gave that a 7.9. Um, I'm going to change it a little bit because you're right. It did have a lot of action battle scenes. Uh, Aragorn's speech was phenomenal and you know you can't take back what you already put yourself into a corner with I'm gonna give it an eight I think that's fair I myself gave the return of the king part two a 7.9 out of 10 and so just to run through mine real quick once more the fellowship of the ring part one I gave an 8.5 out of 10 the fellowship of the ring part two I gave an 8.7 out of 10. The Two Towers Part 1, I gave an 8.1 out of 10. The Two Towers Part 2, 
I gave an 8.6 out of 10. The Return of the King Part 1, I gave a 7.1 out of 10. The Return of the King Part 2, I gave a 7.9 out of 10. Go ahead and run through yours. The Fellowship Part 1, I gave an 8.9. Fellowship Part 2, I gave a 9. Two Towers, I gave Part 1 and Part 2 an 8.7. In Return of the King Part 1, I gave a 7.9. In Return of the King Part 2, I gave an 8. Awesome. And that's kind of cool now that I look at how they match up from the novels to the films and how I rated them both. They're, they're all kind of pretty similar and really almost fall along my ranked order with just the numeric thing. I didn't even really pay attention to it, but you know, with an 8.5 and an 8.7 for the Fellowship of the Ring Part 1 and Fellowship of the Ring Part 2, that's very close to the Fellowship of the Ring. I gave an 8.5 to the novel out of 10. So I did, I did like the Fellowship of the Ring movie a little bit better than I liked Fellowship of the Ring book. And then I was very, very close here. I did like the Two Towers book a little bit more than the movies because I gave the Two Towers part one an 8.1 and the Two Towers part two 8.6, which comparatively I gave the Two Towers novel an 8.7 out of 10. So I liked the, the Two Towers novel just a smidge more. And now this is the, the Return of the King. I gave the film part one a 7.1 and the film part two a 7.9. And I really liked the Return of the King novel. I gave that a 9.0. So it's just funny. I like the first movie better than the first book. I like the second novel just barely more than I like the movie counterpart. And I like the book uh, quite a bit more than I like the uh, Return of the King movie. So I just thought that was pretty interesting. But I, I have a question for you here. A couple more things before we, we wrap up and tie up today. What do you think could have made this series better? What would have, what have you would like to see? What are some things you would have added? What are some things you would have taken out? Just whatever comes to your mind when I say, hey, if you're if you were to write the Lord of the Rings yourself and you have this as a base outline, what are some things that you would do that you think would have been uh, would have been more interesting? I mean, it's interesting how J.R.R. Tolkien set this up because, as we know, like the it makes references to the Silmaril and. Um, that eventually came out afterwards, but it was edited by Christopher Tolkien uh, based on some things he pulled from J.R.R. Tolkien after he died. And so I don't know if he really planned to like do a whole bunch of prequels, but I just kind of wish we got to hear a little bit more about what Sauron was like in the second age here and and how he was in physical form whether it was through you know um flashback stories of the elves or um or that sort of thing or, or they put a little bit in the appendixes um which you can go into that um but i just wish we got to hear a little bit more on that the book side of things i wish we got to hear more description of the battles and some things I, I just didn't feel were really necessary, like the whole debate with Treebeard for like 40 pages. Like, we don't need to hear that. Um, and the film perspective, I wish we got more of Tom Bombadil, but it also did like some fantastic visuals. Um, so that's what I'll say there. I wish it added. I will say on a side note, as far as like Peter Jackson and the directors here, I gotta admit, I, I was impressed. I thought they did really well um, for what we've seen some other directors and stuff do compared to what they have to work with, especially considering there was 
no really like the hobbit wasn't made first when this came out like they were doing this kind of from scratch and made all three at once so um the novels and film films in my opinion overall were fantastic it, it truly took me back to a moment where i enjoyed everything just like when i was a kid and kind of reliving this journey um from beginning to end again um and you know uh you know passing through uh whatever gandalf said the silver sheet <laughs> at the very end it was it was great man so but that's what i wish you kind of got to see a little bit more of was a little bit more of hearing more about the threat sauron was when he was in physical form what about you for me i think there's a few things i would have changed just when it comes to the actual writing of the novel I just really feel that there's just a, so much detail that just unnecessary. Like take out a lot of the descriptions because I don't believe the descriptions really added a lot to the scene that we were reading to a point where it was so necessary. Like I don't right. need 86 adjectives to describe where we're at. Like just <laughs> you know what I mean. Like and I know that that that's a mark of a good writer is being able to put your readers visually into the the what you're trying to have them see at the time, but. It does make certain chapters drag along, and especially when there's no action going on. And you know, there were a few times where I got a little bit drowsy trying to make it through those points where the, the you know, there's some chapters that are 30 plus pages long when they could really be like maybe 22 pages. You know, like you probably cut out 10 pages, you just take out a few details here and there. I think that was one of the things I would make an adjustment on. And then one of the biggest things I would do as well is I would have killed off more of the main characters. Really, no one in the fellowship. That like the nine people who nine members of the company really died except for me. Like Gandalf died but came back. So does that count? I don't really think right. so. Right? Like yeah. so for me, you know, if, if you were to ask me, you know, okay, well then who would you have killed off? For me, I would have killed off both Legolas and Gimli. I would have killed off Boromir. I would have killed off Elrond, and I would have killed off either Merry or Pippin. And I'm going to go through an example of why I would kill off each of these characters. I would kill off. Let's say I would kill off Gimli first, maybe. Uh, no, I mean, outside of Boromir, let's say the Boromir thing already happened. Boromir's gone. Like I liked how he's, he, he died, and that was his whole deal. Now, the next character I'd have die would probably be Gimli. Maybe at Helm's Deep, maybe on the way through, or something happens to Gimli. And basically, Legolas is so desolate and, and like lost inside without his best pal that he make, he does something heroic and does like a last stand and just almost like a... Uh, what do you call it? A hold door, like holds the door type thing. Like you know, they're just like they've got no chance to escape. And Legolas does like, like just puts himself between him and the rest of the fellowship, and just goes like full uh, style and just takes out as many as he can before they overrun him eventually. And the reason he does that is because he kind of wants to, you know, doesn't care that he dies because he just lost his closest friend. However, Gimli, we we end up killing off Gimli whatever way. You know, Legolas ends up becoming like a catalyst and and you know helps them by his sacrifice kind of similar to how what happened to Gandalf except doesn't come back you know so that's how I would kill off Gimli and Legolas you know something regular Gimli die, Gimli dies in one of the battles or one of the wars and then Legolas ends up you know going with him because like I think it's only fitting those two should you know you know live together die together type of deal because even in the, in the appendixes we'll get to they end up sailing off together anyways they, live, they leave Middle Earth they don't they don't stick around they end up sailing off together as it is so they might as well have them sell off into death together in 
a way, not at the same time or the same moment, but just, you know, you, you, I'd love to see the slow deterioration of Legolas as after Gimli dies, you can see him become less of himself, less of himself, and he finally finds his moment to make it all count. I think that'd be really cool. Uh, then from there, I definitely think Elrond should have died. Why the hell is that guy still around? Like, he was like he he was kind of a dickhead, yeah. dude. In the, in the novel series, he didn't help out at all. He didn't go help out in the Great War. Didn't arrive at Gondor. Or nothing to help. He's like, well, we fought in the first Great War, so this is your guys' war now. I'm just gonna take all my people. And we're gonna get out of here and leave you all to it. Like, no, that fucker should have got killed somehow, some way. You know, I, I really think, you know, especially after he gave Arwen a hard time about staying in middle earth for like the proper reasons for like love and the hope of a brighter future and he tried to like be selfish and shit i definitely think elrond should have been killed off uh, even though he, he's cool and he has my respect for what he's done in the past motherfucker didn't do shit in this in this whole series right <laughs> like so i think elrond should have been gone and then i really think mary and pippin we should have had like a fred george moment like when it comes to harry potter where one of them dies and the other one like carries on a little bit less of themselves and they were together because to me they are kind of like Fred, the Fred and George of the Lord of the Rings series and so I think you kill one and, and have one you know carry on in, in, in remembrance but kind of become all that they can be in spite of losing their uh, close others so for me I think that would really help make the novel hit home even a little bit more is killing off some of the more main characters so for me I think they should have killed off Legolas, Gimli, Boromir, Elrond and either Merry or Pippin whichever way you want to go on that so I don't know man what did you think about that do you think that's a good idea what did you think? No, I think it's a great idea. And a uh, point you mentioned that made me think, too, as far as the novel, honestly, as much as I love Arwen <laughs> and what they did in the film, Aragorn should have ended up with Eowyn. Like, sorry, he should have. Like, there's no reason why he shouldn't have. I mean, if we're going according to the novel, like, I, I, I like what the film added. I think that's cool. Like, Flight of the Ford is one of my favorite parts with Arwen. But... In the book, Arwen doesn't do anything. <laughs> she doesn't do shit. Like, she's there at the very end where Elrond gives her her hand, and you hear about her at the Council of Elrond. That's it. Like, that's literally all she does. Like, what's the point? Like, Aragorn spent all this time with Eowyn. Like, you would think, like, that's where their relationship would blossom, and it grows into that where you saw it foreshadowed all this time. And it didn't. And I guess because, like, he... J.R.R. Tolkien wanted to show the, you know, the bridge built between the elves and men, but I think he would have had that bridge anyways, just based on like what he did with Legolas and and that sort of thing, and how he met with Elrond before, and and Gandalf being Mithrandir, and and they went to Galadriel, like I don't, and how he was raised basically by elves anyways. So, I mean, going back to our point where we talked about episodes before you, when we were doing Two Towers, I agree with you. I think. Aragorn should have ended up with Eowyn, but Eowyn got robbed, man. I feel bad for her, but but at the same time, Arwen's you know Arwen's one of my favorites. She's freaking awesome, based on the film and speaking Elvish and and saving the day. <laughs> so that's badass. So uh, I don't know. I, I probably would have changed that too, but I agree with you. I think maybe they should have killed some more characters. Um, I mean, you did have Theoden die, but yeah, it didn't, it wouldn't hit his home as if you had more of the fellowship, uh, pass on a really cool thing. If they did it this way, as much as it would suck, uh, to read, it would be really cool to see like Gimli and Legolas go out, like protecting each other's backs. Like maybe they get backed into a corner at like the black gate and we're like surrounded or like Helm's deep. Like they just got caught in an area and they were like defending like some of the 
kids so they got away or something like how they were trying to flee like maybe you had like one of those war battles or something like that would have been cool but i agree with you 100 percent. awesome the only thing i have here to add to the rest is just some stuff out of the appendixes a little bit before the the i guess the second great war with what they call the third age and then i have a, a going to run through quickly what they have afterwards so uh, to kind of start here and to answer Chase's question a little bit, uh, he's you know getting an idea of what Sauron was and how he came to be. And all we get is a little bit of these appendixes here. It says the second age ended with the first overthrow of Sauron, who was a servant of Morgoth and the taking of the One Ring. So that's how like the second age ends, right? So then the second age, basically Sauron was a servant of Morgoth, who was the main bad guy of the first age. He was the main villain in there, and Sauron was only a servant. So Morgoth like, really kind of puts Sauron to shame in a way, but we don't get to really hear anything about him. Uh, but So biggest things that happen in the Second Age is the foundation of the Grey Havens and of Linden. The Edain reaches Numenor. Dwarves leave their old cities in Erlun and go to Moria and swell its numbers. There's the death of Elrostar and Minitur. Sauron begins a stir again in Middle-earth. The birth of Numenor and Silmarillion. The first ships of the Numerians appear off the coast. Ergion founded by Noldor. Sauron, alarmed by the growing power of the Numenorians, chooses Mordor as a land to make into a stronghold, and he begins the building of Barad-dûr. Tar and Kalami becomes the first ruling queen of Numenor. Sauron endeavors to seduce Elder. Gilgalad refuses to treat with him, and the smiths of Ergion are won over. The Numenorians begin to make permanent havens. The elven smiths instructed by Sauron reach the height of their skill, and they begin forging the Rings of Power. The three rings are completed in Eregion, and Sauron forges the one ring in Orodruin. He completes the Barad-dûr, and Celebrimbor perceives the designs of Sauron. Then we have the War of the Elves, and Sauron begins. The three rings are hidden. Sauron's forces invade Eriador. Gilgalad sends Elrond to Eregion. Eregion laid waste. The death of Celebrimbor. The gates of Moria are shut. Elrond retreats with the remnant of Noldor and finds refuge in Imladris, which is Rivendell. Uh, Sauron overruns Eriador. Tar Minister sends a great navy from Numenor to Linden, and Sauron is defeated there. Then Sauron is driven out of Eriador. The Westlands have peace for a while, and from this time onward, the Numenorians begin to establish dominions on the coast. Sauron extends his power eastward, and shadow falls on Numenor. Tan Amatir takes a scepter. Rebellion and division of the Numenorians begin, and about this time, the Nazgul, or Ring Race, slaves of the Nine Rings, first appear. Umbar is made into a great fortress of Numenor. Pelagrir is built and becomes the chief haven of the faithful Numenorians. Ar Andunakor takes the scepter. The repentance of Tal Palantir. Civil war begins in Numenor. Ar Ferrazone, the gold, seizes the scepter. Ar Ferrazone sets sail and lands at Umbar. Sauron is taken as prisoner to Numenor. Then Sauron seduces the king and corrupts the Numenorians. Ar Farazone begins building the great Aramint. Ar Farazone assails Valinor, the downfall of Numenor. Elendil and his sons escape. Then the foundations and realms in exile, Arnor and Gondor, the stones are divided. Sauron returns to Mordor. Sauron attacks Gondor, takes Minas Ithil, and burns the White Tree. Isildur escapes down Anduin and goes to Elendil in the north. Anarion defends Minas Arnor and Osgiliath. Then we have the last alliance of elves and men is formed. Gilgalad and Elendil march east to Imladris, and the host of alliance crosses the Misty Mountains. The Battle of Dagorlad and the defeat of Sauron, the siege of Baradur begins. And Anarion is slain, and Sauron is overthrown by Elendil and Gilgalad, who perish. Isildur takes the One Ring, and Sauron passes away, and the Ring Wraiths go into the shadows, and the Second Age ends. So that's kind of like the little quick 
uh, rundown of what happens before the Third Age. Now I'm going to give a quick little rundown of events that happen after the with the story that we just finished here going through. And this is the, you know, I guess you can consider the Fourth Age. So with the beginning of the Fourth Age, you know, the, the, it began in 1422 in the year count of the Shires, but the numbers of the years of the Shire Reckoning were continued. So uh, Will Wilfoot resigns and Samwise is elected mayor of the Shire. Peregrine took Mary's diamond of Longcleave. King Elisar issues an edict that men are not to enter the Shire, and he makes it a free land under the protection of the Northern Scepter. Faramir, son of Peregrine, is born. Goldilocks, daughter of Samwise, is born in 1431. In 1432, Meriadoc, called the Magnificent, becomes master of Buckland, and great gifts are sent to him by King Aomer and the Lady Eowyn of Ithilien. Number 1434, Peregrine becomes the Took and Thane. King Elisar makes the Thane the master and mayor counselors of the North Kingdom, and Master Samwise is elected mayor for the second time. In 1436, King Elisar rides north and dwells for a while by Lake Evendim. He comes to the Brandywine Bridge and there greets his friends and he gives the Star of the Dunedain to Master Samwise and Eleanor is made a maid of honor to Queen Arwen. Sam, uh, 1441, Master Samwise becomes mayor for the third time. 1442, Master Samwise and his wife uh, and Eleanor ride to Gondor and stay there for a year. Master Tolman Cotton acts as deputy mary, mayor. 1448, Master Samwise becomes mayor for the fourth time. 1451, Eleanor the Fair marries Fastred of Greenholm on the Far Downs. In 1452, the West March from the Far Downs to the Tower Hills is added to the Shire by gift of the king, and many hobbits go to that and, and, and take up refuge there. In 1454, Elfston Fairbairn, son of Fastred and Eleanor, is born. 1455, Master Samwise becomes mayor for the fifth time. At his request, the Thane makes Fastred Warden of Westmarch. Fastred and Eleanor make their dwellings at Undertowers on the Tower Hills, where their descendants, the Fairbanes of the Towers, dwelt for many generations. 1462, Master Samwise becomes mayor for the sixth time. 1463, Faramir Took marries Goldilocks, daughter of Samwise. 1469, Master Samwise becomes mayor for the seventh time and last time, being in 1476 at the end of his office at 96 years old. In 1482, uh, the death of Mistress Rose, who was the wife of Master Samwise, on Mid-Year's Day. On September 22nd, Master Samwise rides out from Bag End. He comes to the Tower Hills, and it's last seen by Eleanor, to whom he gives the Red Book afterwards, which was kept by the Fairbanes. Among them, the, the tradition is handed down from Eleanor that Samwise passed the Towers and went to the Grey Havens and passed over the sea, the last of the Ring Bearers. In 1484, in the spring of the year, a message came from Rohan to Buckland that King Aomer wished to see Master Holdwine once again. Meriodoc was then old, 102, but still hale, and he took counsel with his friend and Thane, and they handed over their goods and offices to their sons and rode away over the Sarn Ford, and there they were not seen again in the Shire. It was heard after that Master Meriodoc came to Edoras and was with the King Aomer before he died in that autumn. Then he and Thane Peregrine went to Gondor and passed what short years were left to them in that realm until they died and were laid in Rathdinan among the great of Gondor. And in 1541, and this year on March 1st, came at last the passing of King Elisar. It is said that the beds of Meriadoc and Peregrine were set beside the bed of the great king. Then Legolas built a gray ship in Athelion and sailed down the Anduin and so over the sea, and with him, it is said, went Gimli the dwarf. And with that ship passed, an end was come to Middle-earth of the Fellowship of the Ring. So that's the little events that happen after that. And 
It's really sad. That's how they all end up coming to an end, and there's no more of the fellowship there at uh, Middle Earth. So those were the little bit of the key anecdotes of the appendixes. I hope you guys enjoyed that. But I don't know, Chase, is there anything else that you wanted to add here before we close out for the day? Yeah, no, that was cool stuff. Uh, just because this is like our bonus episode, I'll say this because um, uh, that's great you mentioned that because a lot of people, especially, uh, they've asked us, you know, where can they find out more of this information, that sort of thing. If you wanted to find out more like how I did, um, like I studied Elvish <laughs> before we started this, <clears throat> yeah, one you can do is you can look up the Vinyar Tanguar and it'll tell you all about the Elvish system and alphabets and you can learn it with the numbers and all that. Also, if you wanted to read some of these books, here's the other books that have been edited by Christopher Tolkien that have been claimed to be taken from articles and that sort of thing from J.R.R. Tolkien where you can learn more. One is, of course, The Hobbit that we didn't cover. Uh, the Silmarillion there's one called the history of middle earth uh the baron and lithuan uh, the nature of middle earth um, you can also read the fall of gondolin the children of huron bilbo's last song another one that's called unfinished tales of numenor and middle earth and they are actually coming out with one in just a couple months called the fall of numenor <clears throat> and those are all edited by christopher tolkien it's up to you what you want to determine is canon or not but if you want to find out more information of course we won't be covering those specific ones uh you can go there to find out more kind of like how i did with the elvish system cool awesome well you know as sad as it is this is us saying goodbye to the lord of the ring series the key trilogy anyways the fellowship of the ring the two towers return of the king obviously we know that the new amazon series is coming and it's going to tackle more i believe of the second age versus what we cover you know the the key three uh, that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote that kind of really blew up and, and made Lord of the Rings what it is here today. So it is sad to say goodbye to it, but it's been one hell of a ride. I really enjoyed everything that was involved in this. You know, the, the reading, the note-taking, the comparing to the films, ranking it, talking about all these great debates, these amazing things that you can, you know, really interpret in multiple different ways. It was a lot of fun doing this, but, you know, like we said, all good things must come to an end. And so we are going to be moving on to something brand new we're gonna first before we move on to a different topic next week we will be holding a mid-season state of the union we did that last year in season one we're going to be doing the same thing because this is the end of our first major arc here that we're doing here in season two so we will be doing a fun mid-season state of the union next week and then we will be covering new topics directly after that and we'll kind of give you an idea of what those are during that mid-season state of the union so uh, this is your first time listening to us we uh, hope that you enjoy what you heard and you stick around if you want to know where you can find us, we are on all social media pages, so go ahead and follow us and subscribe, click like, uh, comment, leave reviews. But you can find us on Instagram at official ridiculous patronus. You can find us on TikTok at ridiculous patronus. We have a backup Instagram page at fact underscore or underscore fantasy. Backup TikTok at fact underscore or underscore fantasy. We're on Twitter at RP Factor Fantasy, Snapchat RP Factor Fantasy. We're on YouTube. That, uh, Ridiculous Patronus, we're on Facebook, Jason Josh Factor Fantasy, and we do have our own site, ridiculouspatronus.blogspot.com. And in terms of where you can find the podcast specifically, if you're an Apple user, you can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. If you're an Android user, you can find us on Google Play, you can find us on Spotify, we're on Amazon Music, we're on Audible, we're on Podbean, we're on iHeartRadio, we're on Stitcher, we're on Acast, wherever you get your podcasts, we are there. 
And so please leave us those reviews. Go to Spotify. Leave us those star ratings. We love the audience engagement. And, you know, for one last time, we're saying goodbye to Lord of the Rings. It's Chase and Josh with Factor Fantasy. Signing Signing off. off.